0: Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is Tuesday morning, September the twentieth, eight four three, six six one O nine three seven. I didn't do the sports section justice yesterday. I got too self serving, too caught up in my good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Good morning, Freehold. Good morning. So um yesterday I got too caught up on the the uh the Gamecock Georgia football game that I did well, I, mean, I didn't do the Braves justice. I didn't give Freehold a chance to really Explain what he believes happened <laughs> with these Phillies over the weekend. Are the Phillies just not as good as the Braves?
1: Freehold, They do this every year. Like they'll be right into it,
2: mm-hmm. right
0: in
1: it going into uh, September and October, and then they'll just fade away. It's but they're just still what teetering
0: they on whether or not they make the playoffs. Eh, they're the, done. Well, I mean, the Brewers lost last night. Well, they need to beat the Padres. Okay. so they and the end the day, in the Padres yeah. are competing for the last playoff spot. Yeah. Good deal. Okay. Um, and the Braves and Phillies play one another again Thursday, Friday, no, is it Friday, Saturday and Sunday or is it Thursday, Friday and Saturday? There's a makeup game here. I don't think the Mets play Thursday and the Braves do. Cuz the Braves have the Braves and Mets have the same number of losses, but the Mets have two more wins than the Braves. So the Braves got to make up a couple of games between now and the end of the season, and there's what, 18 games left, ish, somewhere like there that. about. So if I'm not mistaken, I think Thursday the Braves play and the and the uh, the Mets do not see both guys have their phones looking
2: at yeah. the schedule. You're doing it from memory. Well, I, mean, I, I think stuff. I am. I, I, mean,
0: I think it is. I think Thursday, the Braves play the Phillies, right. and the Mets are off, if I'm not mistaken. See Mudflaps, yeah, he's he's the resident Mets yes. fan, and he's saying yes, that's right. Thursday, so,
2: Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So they have the, the same
0: number of losses. The Braves have two fewer wins, so the Braves will have a kind of a um a chance to make up a half game or not come Thursday. The Mets won last night, and by that I mean the Braves and Mets both won, but the Mets beat a better team. The Braves won the weekend by beating the Phillies while the Mets played the Pirates. Um, Now it's kind of the shoe on the other foot. The Mets are playing the Brewers, who are a pretty good team, and the Braves are playing the Nationals, who probably will lose, Red said 100 games this year. So, I mean, you just got to keep winning. I mean, if you're a Braves fan or a Mets fan, for that matter, you just got to keep winning. It looks to me like hundred may not win this division uh, as they close strong. That it, they do play one another uh, next week, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, is it? I don't think it's a weekend series. Is it? Is it a midweek series or a weekend uh, series? It is
2: Friday. No, it's Friday it must be Friday. Saturday. Sunday. Okay, of yeah. next
0: weekend, mm-hmm. not this coming weekend, but the
2: next yep, the weekend. It'll be interesting. It'll be real, real interesting. And I didn't give the race justice. Didn't even mention the hey, race. Fun fact, by the way, tonight's Braves game. I just when I looked at the schedule, I found this out: is the University of South Carolina ticket package night, where you can receive a Braves Gamecocks co-branded stadium seat with the purchase of the specialty ticket package. Okay, the the, the breaking news on the Gamecock football program. You ready for this? Mm-hmm. They've
0: announced. or they announced yesterday? That the South Carolina State game will be a noon broadcast, a noon kickoff. Saw that. Um, here's what you can do. Don't like noons. You can electrify the upper deck at Williams Bryce next Saturday and not hurt anybody. <laughs> I mean, you can run a two hundred. Oh, come you, on, you, you can you can juice the upper decks at Williams Bryce a week from this Saturday. Now this Saturday, Charlotte is. I mean, you know, it's, it's a seven thirty kick. Uh, Weather is supposed to be real pleasant. All you need is rain next Saturday. But I mean, if they had rain next Saturday, there would be 1,600 people in the stadium. Yeah, I the deal. Mean, yeah, there would be. Uh, but anyway, a noon kick. Uh, fan base is a bit down. Um, you know, South Carolina State team that you don't expect to give you much of a tussle. Who knows in today's college football world. But, yeah, a week from Saturday, you could electrify both upper decks and wouldn't hurt a single person because I'm predicting nobody would be there. Now, I've argued for about 10 years that, paint the upper decks garnet i mean the, the the sec i don't know how much money the, the school has to spent on football but the sec tv contract is about 60 million dollars a year take some of that money buy some garnet paint paint the upper decks garnet it shows much better on television when the upper decks are not full I no mean, but it just does that bright shiny aluminum i mean how much does it cost to paint aluminum garnet it doesn't cost $50 million, I can assure you of that. And once again, the optic. Because here's where we're headed, guys. I don't care how important you think your college football program is. Attendance is going to be in decline. I mean, it's a, um, I mean, it's just a, I've never understood this, so we're going to charge more for something that not as many people want. Ticket prices go up, but not as many people want those tickets. They did
2: have two sellouts. First two home games well, I mean, were sellouts this year,
0: right? Yeah, they, they had sellouts. I had to think the sellouts at Costco and You know, and then $25 if you buy one, you get six free and all those other sorts of things. I get it. I mean, it's marketing, and I understand that. But but you know this as well as I do. Um, I'll give an example. Tennessee will play, Tennessee and Florida play this weekend. It, It won't be full.
2: Guest picker on game day? I don't know. Steve Spurrier. Is it? Yeah, that's what I read okay. last night.
0: Well, I mean, the, the more Spurriers involved in college football, the better college football yeah. is. I'll assure you of that. Now, it, it'll be interesting and entertaining, no question about it. Yeah. So, um, so I've got a good Saturday scheduled. So we get there early. I mean, we do our thing. We tailgate because it's not worth it just to go to the football game. So we've got this uh, extended tailgate planned for Saturday. Clemson plays Wake Forest at 12. So we'll get set up by halftime of the Clemson game. And then you've got Georgia, excuse me, Tennessee and Florida, playing at three 30 and then we'll make our way to the stadium. So yeah, we'll watch a lot of football and cook some good grub. I think we settled on chicken and beef kebabs okay. uh, on the griddle is what we're um, kind of planning for. And uh, so, so anyway, I didn't do racing justice. Still ain't done racing justice because Rev interrupted me about the bomb. Um, Sorry about the, uh, the Braves again. Yep, so let's factoid hear about the Braves. Um, they got to get this next gen car figured out. And, and here's the problem. The, the race teams are having part failures and they're not in control of the parts. The next gen car was designed for everybody. It's this parity, uh, you know, we live in this era of equality and equity and nobody needs an advantage over nobody else. So you order brake pads and you order brake lines and you order, you know, certain product come for certain parts come from a parts supplier and then the parts start falling apart. If if you build a part, you build a car, you know, with your parts that you fabricate and manufacture and they fall apart, that's on you. But all of a sudden, if you've got brake lines giving trouble and and brake brake rotors giving trouble and you're not in control, I mean, NASCAR NASCAR mandates that these parts come from supplier X, Y, or Z. I mean, there's a lot of frustration out there, and um, they've got a lot of work to do with this car. I've heard from about six or seven teams in different podcasts and articles I've read that the drivers just don't feel like they can push this car to the edge. I mean, the drivers, by their very nature, want to push the car to the edge. I mean, they want to, you know, uh, they want to go as fast as they can, lap after lap after lap, but they're finding now, I I may have a third or fourth place car. I told Rev, a certain driver said two weeks ago, three weeks ago in Darlington, he felt he had a third place car, but he didn't trust it that much. I mean, he just didn't trust driving off into the corner the way those guys like to drive off into the corner. So he paced himself while everybody else had trouble and, you know, tires blew out and brakes went bad and i mean he kind of survived and i just think they've got to really figure out a way to make this car more dependable just more dependable mm-hmm. to the parts in in particular well, there are some questions
2: when you know engines blow up for apparently no reason they yeah, catch on catch fire catch on
0: fire yeah catch on fire i mean how many times does that happen unless you have a fuel leak or you know fuel leak brake pads and things like that but this guy said it just now it's just some of the um some of the rubber off the track got in places and got kind of um around the heat of the motor engine and it caught on fire and burnt the car <laughs> nearly nearly to a crisp mm-hmm. like when sitting beside the interstate you know and you wonder whether he had insurance paid up on that eight four three six six one zero nine three seven I want to talk finance so we can talk a lot, a lot of different things I've sent Rev a um the most recent Peter Thiel video I've gotten my hands on um. Why is that guy so unique and interesting? Here's what I found out over the weekend. Teal intends to spend zero money, zero of his own money, in the general election. Odd. No idea why. But I have it from a reliable source that Teal spent about thirty, uh, probably closer to $40 million in the Senate race, Blake Masters and J.D. Vance, um, and he's not going to spend anything when it comes to getting those guys elected in the general. I have no idea why i mean does he have is there some i don't know does he have a stock going south is he worried about uh, the economy i don't have any idea but um but word is that peter teal is not going to spend remember i said last week the sentinel fund i thought that was some of the teal money that's the conversation i had i said hey man it looks to me like teal is not playing in the general but there's this big contribution made via the sentinel fund is that teal money and he said no i mean it's kind of um it's being rumored in republican circles that Teal's going to sit out the general uh, election cycle in the midterms. Uh, why? Don't have any idea. Couldn't begin to, I don't fly in those circles. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't run in those circles. This person doesn't either, but he associates with people that do um, interact in in that world of um, of high-flying, jet-flying, limousine-riding, you know, Rolex-wearing, all that good stuff. Um, speaking of money, I want to go back. Uh, we didn't talk much at all about the Queen's funeral. I mean, it started. we the, we're the only down, ones. Well, I mean, Rev and I sat down yesterday morning, and Her Majesty was being laid to rest. At the beginning of the show, when I walked out of the studio at ten fifteen, Her Majesty was being transported uh, in, in you know, in the coffin. It, it's, it's a bit bizarre, she, but hey, it is what it she is. She was moving a lot more than we were. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't know if she'll ever be settled. Um, it's, but she was a, um, I mean, obviously an iconic uh, figure culturally politically uh we gave her some kudos about being neutral and the neutrality of her reign is probably something that she will be remembered for and of but it's just kind of interesting to me um i went to chick-fil-a got a bowl of soup a few days last week and looked over to my left and noticed the flag was at half staff and i just you know immediately go that oh, flag at half staff what's going on here? okay the queen i mean I, you know I'm, I'm speculating i don't know why chick-fil-a had their flag at half staff, but I'm imagining the reason they did some of the um some of the public sector office buildings here in town in Sumter and Orangeburg, uh in Florence, I mean it all over the state, all over the country had their flags at half staff in recognition for a monarch. And that's just yeah. bizarre to me when, when, when you say it when, like that. What well, I mean when, when I see the American flag weird. It, it 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 flies in the face of monarchy. And right. you know, and, and it's just kind of—I mean, it's bizarre to me now. now once again, Why i is get, there in America? I get the respect, I get the adoration, I get the intrigue, I get the mystique of the monarchy. But the American flag is based upon what? I mean, anything but her, an hereditary mm-hmm. monarchy. I mean, it's a—it's um, republicanism, it's democracy, it's individual liberties and freedoms. Um, I went back and read a lot of the BBC's reporting. Um, I did this yesterday afternoon and into the evening last night. Watching the Braves and and some football. Um, I've got this system that works for me. I got the television on mute, Braves in the background, football in the background, and I'm doing my work. Um, and it's it's kind of um, it's interesting to read some of the reporting. Uh, the the BBC, the British media. Let's say this: the British media are a bit divided, not on whether she was a lady of dignity and. And charm and grace and you know the neutrality we talked about last week, but but the reality is they're doing extremely well off the backs of the uh, the British taxpayer. I mean, unbelievably well. In fact, it's so good that there is a provision in um, in British government um, called I want to make sure sovereign to sovereign. In, um in 1993 the United Kingdom's government passed a a law uh that created a unique arrangement uh it it, it, it it it's a lot about the crown estate but it's centered around the crown estate and that's this uh vast portfolio of land and property um they believe it's somewhere around 15 billion dollars uh excuse me 15 uh, 15 billion pounds in assets that would be what uh 20 billion dollars i mean i'm trying to do the correlation here in my head uh the the, the queen we believe was worth somewhere in the neighborhood uh, let's do this somewhere between 400 billion and a trillion dollars <laughs> excuse me excuse me i'm sorry i'm sorry don't get that wrong 400 million and a, and billion, and a billion dollars okay Uh, now, now, once again, that's personal wealth. I mean, that's what she was worth personally, but then you've got this, uh, this, um, this crown estate that she kind of sort of owns, but she kind of sort of doesn't. And in 1993, the UK government, um, in, in order to preserve some of the Royal wealth, I guess they were concerned about some, you know, um, young person becoming King or queen, not being savvy enough financially and, um, and squander some of the enormous wealth that the, the British public basically maintain, um, fund to maintain. But they created this, um, uh, and uh, nobody knew much about it until she passes away. And then you start digging into this 1993 legislation, is what you and I would argue, as Americans it is, um, I would argue a unique arrangement. But it allowed for the transfer of sovereign to sovereign wealth to be exempt from inheritance tax. But I mean, if a wealthy individual in Great Britain dies, there's a certain percentage of that wealth they owe to the British government in the name of inheritance tax, the estate tax in America, the inheritance tax, um, the death tax. Remember Limbaugh and Reagan, you know, the mm-hmm. death tax. Um, you work all your life, you create a, a certain amount of wealth, and you want to pass that wealth along to your, you know, family, and you, there's an inheritance tax, death tax. Uh, uh, but But anyway, in 1993, Um, the British government, the United Kingdom's government basically said that any of the royal wealth is exempt from any sort of inheritance tax, the sovereign to sovereign. Why would the British people stand for this? I mean, that's what I don't understand. I'm not a Brit. I'm not that intrigued by the queen. I respect her grace and dignity and and neutrality. I respect all of that. I mean, I think the lady probably managed her affairs as a member of the royal family as well as anybody has. And she took the throne as a a young person. You know, Charles will be different. He's 70. I mean, it's really people should be more interested in what Charles's son is like. You know, what is his demeanor? What is his attitude? Is he willing to be graceful and dignified and neutral and, and all these other sorts of things as the king were? But Charles is 70. I mean, he suggested uh, fairly strongly that he is a liberal Democrat. I mean, he really has bought into climate change, I mean, I've heard him say a lot of things that, that have made some of the Royal observers, you know, a little bit nervous about Charles. We don't do that. I mean, the queen set the standard. I mean, she doesn't get involved in those sorts of matters. Um, and Charles says, well, I don't care. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the queen's son. I'm the eventual King. You know, I, I'll say what I want to say and do what I want to do. And I, I just, you know, it's going to be interesting to watch you know, modern Britain, modern Great Britain, um, have as their royal monarch leader, a dude. You know, I don't know how much they're going to like that. I mean, you know, the wokeness is not, I mean, wokeness doesn't stop at the uh, at the, the shores of the ocean in America. I mean, wokeness is a political reality and a cultural reality all over the world, and Charles has um, proven to be not quite as reserved as the queen was. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but when you look at some of this... Um, crown estates portfolio and asset management it's staggering but I mean, it's unbelievable you're talking about um somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 million dollars worth of real estate 300 million dollars worth of real estate that they control as part of this i guess this sovereign grant that goes all the way back to the beginning of the monarchy um <laughs> nice. And, good well, for I mean, them. It, but good for them but bad for the British people, <laughs> right? right? I mean it's got to be bad for the British people. They fund. I mean there, there's a the, it, it's a full, excuse me, it's officially funded by the taxpayer of Great Britain um via the sovereign grant and the royal I mean is there a royal household uh, anyway they, they the sovereign grant does a financial report um you know based on I mean it would be are you filing jointly or not? I mean, that's what you and I, you know, are you filing jointly as a household or not? But they calculated that the sovereign grant, um, that via the sovereign grant, through the sovereign grant, they're receiving about 125 to $50 million a year from the British government. What, what do they do with that money? They don't have any political power, Right. I mean, it, it's ceremonial. It's symbolic. I mean, it's really. It and, and here's why I'm gonna make a prediction. I'm good about making predictions. Whether they come true or not, I think Charles will be the last of the the relevant royalty. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I, I think you you know, 70 years ago is a long time. I mean, that that's pre Second World War, right? I mean, so she was the. Um, I mean, she has seen Europe fall apart and be built back. Uh you think the citizens? will step up and say, hey, enough with this. Well, I mean, I I think for 70 years, you just assumed the queen was the queen was the queen. And now you're having to transition to a dude that that a lot of people don't care much for. And, yeah, I think they're going to start poking holes at why did we make this deal? I mean, you know, and and once again, now the deal is the deal is the deal. The sovereign grant. I mean, it it goes back. I mean, it it goes back a long, long, long time. The deal that uh, they made with the British government. I understand that. But public scrutiny is still powerful. And I think you're going to begin seeing. Well, I mean, This is all I need to read. I mean, this is about an eight-page um, excerpt from. I mean, it's about a twenty-page article. I didn't read it all, but I skimmed it all and read about six or eight pages. But but you know, if you are a citizen of Great Britain, a taxpayer of Great Britain, and and you watch, I mean, some of the um some of the pageantry, pomp and circumstance of yesterday, you felt you owed it to a 90-year-old lady or a 96-year-old lady who had been queen for 70 years, kind of um, been at the throne during the Second World War. Or is is Charles going to get that benefit of the doubt? No, he's not. And they're going to begin really poking holes at the sovereign fund, this crown estate, state, um, the fact that they can pass all of this wealth down from generation to generation, with exempt of inheritance tax, I mean, if you're Joe Joe Sixpack running a muffler shop and you've done okay, and all of a sudden you you know you want to pass that business down to your son, and you're paying a 32 percent inheritance rate, and, and and here's the queen passing her wealth down to her son, the king, the eventual king, and they're exempt from inheritance tax. I mean, how does that square up? <laughs> I mean, I don't know how it sounds to me, but but I you know I'm I'm an, I'm a kind of an aggressive America firster, mm-hmm. uh, rab, rabble rousing Jeffersonian take my opinion for what it's worth but but i just think the um the dignity and standing of the queen will be second to the financial realities of of how they've cooked up this deal and and once again i don't think people have as favorable a feeling an emotional attachment to king charles as they did queen elizabeth for what it's worth um it's just kind of odd to me they can pass all that wealth down, exempt of any form of inheritance. They're royalty, tax. What Yeah. Do you expect. Well, I mean, I, I, but That's should royalty rolls, well, man. Okay. Yeah, they, somebody won the ovarian lottery. <laughs> what, what about them? Is so deserving. I mean, they they were born to the right parents.
2: Really, I mean, what's the point it. of being royal if you can't do things like that? But but, but
0: what's the point of even having royalty? What what makes <laughs> someone royal? I mean, are you better at it than anybody else? I don't know. Nobody else gets to try. Are you a better king than anybody? Are you a better queen than anybody? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But nobody else gets to try it. Whether they suck, whether they're great, they are. And you're stuck with the king. Take a break. Back in a minute. As Tom Petty said, it's good to be king. <laughs> Sounds like it. If only for a while. To sit there in velvet and give them a smile. <laughs> yeah, the, the life of luxury. Uh, I just think it's odd that the 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 British Parliament would agree to allow in 1993 the transference of wealth, because none of these real properties are maintained by the Royal family. I mean, Windsor castle and all these other, you know, luxurious homes and, uh, castles that they, I I guess, call their own. I mean, I don't know how they're deeded, but they're maintained by, by the British government. I mean, the government sets aside certain funds to maintain the houses that these uh, that this royalty lives in and calls their own. It's kind of a weird arrangement. Wow. I mean, it looks to yeah. me like somebody out-negotiated somebody else.
2: <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know
0: the conditions of which this deal was bartered, but it looks to me like somebody far out-negotiated. Pretty one-sided. Uh, and no, no question about it. Uh, hired a, you know, it's, it's almost like the ADs and the SEC and the head coaches who hire Jimmy Sexton. You put Jimmy Sexton, one of these cutthroat agents, in a room with a um, with an athletics director and Sexton normally gets more out of the um, the athletics director than the athletics director gets out of out of Jimmy Sexton in representation of whomever the coach he's uh,
2: working for or on behalf of. So about this time yesterday, we were looking at the Dow futures, and they were way down. And it looks like the market kind of ended up flat yesterday. And we, you know, you were preaching a little doom and gloom. I, I think we all end up, at the end of the day,
0: I mean, I'll stick to my guns. You know, we will have ebbs and flows. We will have gyrations. We will have a couple of optimistic days. And if you watch CNBC, it's bull, bull, bull. That's their job. But I mean, they're, they're waiting to get you and I and all others to invest their money in the market. So they're going to be cheerleaders and, and sunshine pumpers. Now, every now and then, they'll let a bear on to say, hey, this thing ends in tears. One of the renowned guys from Guggenheim came on yesterday and basically said, "You know, this will end in tears." um He's calling for a 25 percent sell-off of the market that will put it um at about 24,000 ish, somewhere there about. It's already down what 16 percent. I think it's been down 20 percent at some point in time during the year. It's down 16 percent. Here's what I know: All right, Look, I- I'm not a money manager by any stretch of the imagination. No one should ever trust me. To make investment decisions on their behalf that's what reggie armstrong is for uh reggie's technically savvy and and a student of the process i'm not but but i do have an understanding of the macro and you can you can lay down on a graph every time the fed injects capital into the economy the market goes up the market likes that excess capital it does not like when the fed begins restricting or tightening that there's a direct correlation I mean, it's not real complicated when it comes to that. If I had a graph uh, of Fed activism and a graph of the market reacting, they would almost be one of the same. The trajectory of those lines would almost overlap one another, maybe not exactly the same. But as the Fed creates capital out of thin air, puts that capital into the economy, the, the, the stock market loves that. S&P reacts accordingly. Uh, the Dow reacts accordingly. The investment community reacts accordingly. And we're going to take out about a trillion dollars over the next 10 weeks. Excuse me, the next 10 months. So in less than a year, there will be a trillion dollars less capital or less liquidity in the economy than there is today. And we believe that we're not going into a recession. Reb, the, the, the intent of raising rates and extracting the capital via quantitative tightening is to drive us into a recession. It's to curb demand. I mean, that's why you do this. What we had outrageous um, monetary policy. What we made big mistakes in COVID. We printed about five trillion dollars in the name of COVID relief alone. Now, once again, the Fed has about nine billion dollars on its balance sheet, but about five—excuse me, $9 dollars. $5 trillion of it is simply associated with us shutting down the economy and trying to make up good. Now, here's a, here's an interesting statistic. The $5 trillion the Fed created and injected in the economy ended up giving about $2 trillion worth of GDP activity. I mean, it was a terrible investment, mm-hmm. but that's what the government does. The government does not understand the proper allocation of capital because it's not really theirs. It's anybody's. I mean, if, if, if you're making money, if you're printing money out of thin air, Why do you really care how um, efficiently it's allocated? So the Fed created $5 trillion in the name of COVID relief, put that money at play in the economy. The economy grew to the number of about $2 trillion in GDP growth. So we got 40% bang for that buck. The the absurdity of that. so, So once again, when we start taking that liquidity out of the economy, simultaneously raising interest rates and we don't believe we're going to drive off into the abyss but there's no other scenario here I mean the only question to ask is how bad is bad right I mean I think Larry said you know we're we're shiny city on a hill we're less dull than some of the other dull cities or some of the other dull countries I get that And, and once again there's still a demand for dollars I mean there is because Europe has really squandered it probably at least as bad as we have but but you, you know we can sit down for hour after hour and go through i mean you can have economists world-renowned economists the, the truth is when the fed creates capital liquidity and that capital and liquidity makes it way to the economy wall street responds positively when the fed begins taking that liquidity out of the economy wall street begins kind of like uh-oh and that's why i said yesterday is it really money if you put the money in the economy for a specific reason, COVID relief, knowing you're going to eventually take that money back out of the economy, is it really money?
2: Well, if it isn't, what is it? Well,
0: I mean, I don't know. I'm asking the question. I don't have the answer to that. I mean, if our con, if our GDP, we we used this analogy yesterday. If the GDP, if the if the American GDP, as big as it is, it's finite. You, you and I, I think we saw some statistics yesterday, somewhere around $25 trillion. So there's $25 trillion worth of gross domestic product out there somewhere. You get a little bit. I get a little bit. Um, Freehold gets a little bit. Our listeners get a little bit. Everybody fights for their fair share of that GDP. So it's $25 trillion And the Fed says, hey, wouldn't it be nice because of some of these economic issues to pump more liquidity into the economy, well, the GDP all of a sudden becomes $35 trillion. So, So it inflates prices. I mean, it makes things worth more than they really are. Stocks, bonds, cars, trucks, Jeeps, um, homes, second homes, third homes. I mean, everything inflates as a result of $10 trillion in excess liquidity. And all of a sudden, they start saying, okay, over the next year, we're going to take you know $10 trillion out of the economy. They're going to take about, excuse me, a trillion dollars out of the economy in two years. Two trillion dollars out of the, how is there not some unfavorable result as an example? I mean, it's it's unfathomable to me to believe that everything's going to be okay. Soft, there is no way in Hades we're going to have a soft landing. None. That the only question we should ask is, do we have to replace the tires after we land or not? It's going to be a hard, hard landing. Does it bust the tires? Or
3: not. Let's go to the phone.
2: Here is Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe.
3: Yeah, good morning, guys. Um, one thing, talking earlier about the Braves, I'm surprised you haven't mentioned this kid Striker. Have you seen him? What a phenomenon he is. I think he's the ace of the staff. I Strider. think he's better than free. Oh, yeah, Spencer man, Strider. He is, he's a freak of nature. But he's got one bad thing, Joe. I think he
0: pitched to Clemson.
3: <laughs> he did
0: he, he was a clemson tiger
3: pitch, and it really doesn't matter but i tell you what that boy can throw a sinker at 99 miles an hour that them boys can't i think he just hit the uh, 200 strikeout mark in 130 innings and that's like a new world record broke randy time. johnson's record you got a 200
0: yeah. strikeouts faster than anybody ever in major league baseball yeah.
3: I think Randy Johnson did it 130.2 and he did it 130 even. Yep. But, you know, we've started going into a recession the minute, if you remember, the minute the Fed stopped quantitative easing back in April. You know, that first quarter was negative, second quarter is negative, but we're not in a recession. But the thing that, that amazes me is, you know, the Fed's trying to raise interest rates, and that hurts us because the, the government doesn't cut back. You know, they can't do with any less money. We have to do with less money, but the government can't do with a penny less. So the Fed is, is beating his head against the wall because the government keeps spending money. I mean, they've cut back. The deficit last year was 2.73, and and now they're beating their chest about how how much they lowered the deficit. But somebody called yesterday and wanted to know what good was the gold. They you can't eat it and all this stuff. I tell you what you can do with it. You can do like the big boys do. When these people like Bezos and all their shares and stock, they if they need money they go bar you against their shares. They don't sell their shares and pay taxes on it. They borrow against it, and there's no tax liability. When I need money, I go and borrow against my gold, and oh, I pay any taxes on it, and I pay it back. I get my gold back. You know, it's better than your house because gold has appreciated. I think the last time I bought gold, it was $205 an ounce. So... The goal is the inflation hedge for us little guys because we can't do it on the scale that big guys do it, but it's definitely a hedge against inflation when you need money.
0: Thank you, Joe. Appreciate
3: it. Well, But but the point I tried to make yesterday is
0: why is gold not? I mean, if people believe, let's take a break. I hear the music. Let's take a break. We'll come back and continue that conversation on the other side. Back in a minute. You can make this as confusing as you choose to make it, or you can look at it in a very simple way. Now, I can't look at it real confusing because I'm simply not bright enough. I have to break it down in the most simpleton version or iteration as possible. But the two-day Fed Open Minutes Committee will begin today. I mean, it kicks off this morning. It'll conclude sometime tomorrow afternoon. The Fed will announce its rate decision. They will um, summarize their policy statement. They'll give a another summary of economic projections. They'll answer some questions. They'll have a press conference. Jerome Powell will say, you know, we're... we're Ardently it's in, in defense of, uh, of, of, inflation. inflation or after inflation, uh, he will never accept responsibility that they're the ones that remember he, along with Janet Yellen and some of the others, uh, thought about how transitory this inflation would be. Um, we always questioned that here. We always thought it would be sticky inflation, so to speak. Um, they're expected to raise what we call the federal fund rate by three quarters of one point. 80% of the people on Wall Street believe that tomorrow the Fed will announce a 0.75 or 75 basis point um, rate increase. 20% believe it'll be 100 basis points. Why does that matter? I mean, why are you and I concerned about what the Fed rate is? I mean, it does. It seems like a land far, far away. I don't care what they do with the Fed open minutes market and committee. I don't work for Goldman I don't work for J.P. Morgan. Um, Let's let's make an assumption, for argument's sake. And I know we got a call, and and we'll get there in two seconds. For argument's sake, let's say that Rev gets transferred. Rev's been at Community Broadcasters for two years. He gets transferred to another job. He's got a home, he wants to sell that home. Rev's mortgage is 3.5% because he got it in, in the best time imaginable. As a result of that three and a half percent mortgage, Rev has a two hundred seventy-five thousand dollar uh, mortgage. In other words, he paid three hundred seventy-five of the house. He put 100000 hundred down, two seventy-five. His payment at three and a half percent is twelve thirty-five a month. All of a sudden, the Fed rate has gone up three and a half points. Um, the mortgage rate have gone up in a commiserate, uh, com- uh, you know, amount. So, so the Fed rate is now four percent. The mortgage rate is close to seven percent. That twelve hundred thirty-five dollar a month mortgage. For REV to sell that house and somebody to find another $275,000 mortgage is $830. So that's a $600 increase in the price of that home and and the mortgage. The the home's not, I mean, it's still the same home. I mean, the home has been devalued uh, that the increased value was because of favorable finance rates. The decrease in value is because of unfavorable. Finance rates. So, so the person goes to Rev and says, "Look, my bank will approve me for a uh, you know a twelve hundred thirty-five dollar a month payment, just like you've got." but they won't let me have 275,000 because that's going to cost me 1830. And that gets out of the, uh, you know, this rule of thumb, 30% of your, you know, gross income needs to go to service debt and mortgage. It's not exactly that, but I mean, these banks have certain uh, requirements or stipulations or, or models that they go by. So all of a sudden the revs payment at 275,000 a month is the same thing as somebody else born 185,000. That's a $90,000 haircut. So, so the person trying to buy Rev's home says, I want the home, I need the home, but I can't afford the home at, at the price you paid. Rev has an asset that is worth less today than when he bought it. But was it ever worth what Rev paid for it? That's the great confusion. What is it worth? And when the Fed chooses to keep interest rates as cheap as they did to inject as much liquidity into the economy as they did, you get a false sense of what things are really worth. So, so that's why it matters to us. I mean, it doesn't matter to me what Jerome Powell says in its summary, right? I mean, that, that's in the weeds. That's above my pay grade. I mean, Wall Street will react accordingly. But where the rubber hits the road, people have their home as their largest asset, that they've got another job at another state they need to move. So so to move today, Rev's got to take, uh, if somebody's going to buy that house with the same payment that that he has, Rev's going to have to sell that house for a $90,000 haircut. So, so it absolutely matters what when the fed um i mean the, the current range is what to three and a half. they say they want to get to four that means they're going to raise but uh, probably three quarters of one percent to tomorrow another half point in, uh, in october probably another half point in december so all of a sudden the 30-year mortgage what will, will be seven seven and a half percent ish i mean that that is a tremendous impact on the housing market and the housing market is a big part of our economy, it's almost the, the 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 honest question to ask yourself is, what is my home worth? I mean, really and truly, what is my home worth? My home is worth one thing when the economy's rolling along and interest rates are three three and a half percent. My home is worth something different when the economy's not rolling along and interest rates are seven seven and a half percent. I mean, that's a fundamental um, issue. I mean, I don't know how to address that. I mean, I can't begin to address that. Can Rev take a $90,000 haircut on a home that he has to sell because he's got another job in another state? Only he can answer that. <laughs> Heck no. <laughs> I mean, he, only only you can answer that. Right. I don't know. I mean, all of a sudden, what what if Rev put $75,000 down, and, and, you know, all of a sudden he's $90,000 for, for, for the math to work like the math did for him. He's got to pay $90,000 or take $90,000 less. He's upside down and and the biggest asset he has in his life all of a sudden the house isn't the biggest asset he has in his life we don't have a problem with subprime i mean we don't have a lot of non-verified income loans out there i mean we've been a little more diligent in making sure 2008 doesn't repeat itself but we kept interest rates so suppressed and we injected all this liquidity into the economy that it came with with unrealistic asset appreciation and now we're trying to i mean it's it's amazing to me how many smart people kind of like well i didn't see that coming if I did, you did. I mean, if someone they as dumb as me, coming. if someone as dumb as me sees that coming a million miles away, how in God's name don't you? Eight four three six six one zero nine
2: three seven. Let's and, go to the and phone. And not only do they see it coming, uh, they still want to spend more. I mean, how well, many they are spending are they? more. Yeah, I know. Let's go to the phone. Breeze is our caller. Hey, Breeze.
4: It's the same old problem, guys. We keep looking at things like we're dealing with legitimate honest brokers. Like we're like everybody's trying to do the right thing, but the reality is this is just legalized organized crime. The Fed does not give a rat's behind. The daggone, old uh, the royal red takes a ninety five thousand dollar bath. The market don't give a rat's behind. The whole thing is rigged. and It is rigged for the daggone, old um, uber rich and everyone else. And they all know how it, it's, it's, it's. They're gangsters, guys. We are sitting there. We're trying to give g- treat gangsters like they're moral, and just people. These guys are they're gangsters in four thousand dollar suits. So you know they no, they they have no more morals, no more character than the dag um the the, the mafia loan shark, the mafia bookie, the mafia Nagel, old um, runs Is like, they, they we're you're acting like these guys have character and integrity. They may have fooled themselves into thinking that, but. Guys were dealing with a bunch of thugs, a bunch of gangsters and noodles. and another thing that out of the ten to twenty thousand things that pissed me off every day, I was just sitting here thinking of all of the crap that they like that they've done in the past my lifetime, but just in the past six years. I remember calling you guys when that whole steel dossier Russia collusion crap came up. I said, "I bet you it was from the Democrats. I bet you, and you never know, got kind of last it wouldn't surprise me, but still. The point I made we keep forgetting stuff. We forget what these mayors did to us. We forget what the government did to us. We forget right now hell, who the hell's heard these I mean, we forget right what's what's going on right now um, with the Nagle war in the Ukraine. Is that not important anymore? I mean all the stuff that was important just two months ago, everybody's forgotten about. Everybody's sitting there doesn't realize how bad they crapped all over us with COVID and they did it on purpose. The vaccines, they're killing people. They're covering that up, and nobody's mad about it. What the hell does it take to piss this country off? I mean, you look at all of the crap that's going on, and everybody's like Nero. They're sitting on top of their house playing a fiddle while the damn building's burning down around them. It just old I can't even it, just gets me so angry. And I would love to hear these nagging, sissy ass professors trying to explain to their buddies at Martha's Vineyard, too, if any of them. But they show up today. Explain that to me. And you know what, guys, again, Tucker Cross is right, it's not hypocrisy. They have that elitist, they nag on It's their caste system. They don't believe that the rules apply to Martha's Vineyards that apply to Brownsville, Texas. And I'd like to hear any liberal, like I said yesterday, somebody needs to call in and tell us what a wonderful job this administration is doing and what wonderful people the Obamas and the Clintons and the rest of those guys are at Martha's Vineyard. And quit calling us a bunch of daggled chocolate dikes or whatever. And look at and look at and you and, and look at themselves. they just chaps my ass.
0: Thank you, Breeze. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is the number. Breeze referred to um, the the financial cartel as the you know they're gangsters. Um, I don't know how, I I don't know how inaccurate that is. I mean, I'll be honest, is is it organized crime? Uh, Let's let's, just go back to a statistic I gave yesterday. So pre-COVID, the average individual client of a bank had about $400 in their checking account. I mean, 92% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. 8% don't. Now, Now, some have bigger paychecks and live better lives. But the majority of Americans don't have a lot of money set aside in case of an emergency or for a retire. You know, the majority of people don't retire because they like to have fun. I mean, I've got a lot of buddies in my in my world. I mean, I'm, I'm approaching 60. And that's the point in time you start wondering where the last 40 years went. I never thought I'd get 60. So you get 60, you're self-employed and you say, what have I done to prepare for life after work? Well, I mean, we've dealt with 2001, 2008, and you know the, the pandemic. I mean, there have been several economically disruptive events in our lives that have happened, and um, and most people my age have convinced themselves that there is going to be no retirement. I mean, there's just going to be. Think of this, Rev. I mean, imagine that. I mean, and I think this is all about the Fed and then the government. I really believe this. I think there's so little predictability in the economy because of the, the Fed's carelessness and recklessness, but they've had a lot of their recklessness is because the government assumes debt and the Fed has to purchase that debt. I mean, that, that's kind of sort of why the Fed has become as activist as it has. If the government balanced its budget, the Fed wouldn't have to buy that debt. Fair enough? Yeah. I mean, if the government Makes took sense. in $4 and it spent $4 trillion, the Fed could say, hey, we've got some things we're doing, but at least you guys are living within your means. The Fed's having to buy or having to sponsor buying about a trillion dollars worth of debt annually in the name of federal government. Now, we talked yesterday about China. You know, um, the Chinese own all of our debt. The Chinese don't own much of our debt at all. 700 billion of the 31.1 trillion dollars of debt. Japan owns more of our debt than China. 1.2 trillion dollars. Foreign governments own about seven and a half trillion dollars. The... The public owns about $24 trillion of government debt. Some of it is intra-government lending. Uh, about 7 or eight million, or a trillion of it is intra-government lending. I mean, what that basically means is when you pay your Social Security or Medicare benefit, it doesn't go into those trust funds and, and lock boxes. It goes into the um, you know the, the general fund ballots, and out of that they allocate or, or do whatever to move money around. Bob, pay Peter, borrow from Peter to pay Paul. I mean, that, that's the way we would— uh, argue that it's done but it's, it's just absurd that people my age but I mean, the biggest concern we have and i'm talking about my generation i'd be a young baby boomer i mean i think they're are older baby boomers obviously and then there are younger baby boomers the younger baby boomers that i know that have accumulated some wealth in their lives are deeply disturbed about investing in traditional methods because they believe there's another disastrous period or two headed our way, probably in the next 10 or 15 years. And it's because the government can't constrain itself. The government's made all these promises, Medicare, Medicaid, social security, and they're insolvent. I mean, for all practical purposes, Medicare, Medicaid, and social security are insolvent that there's not enough money coming in to honor the obligations and commitments they've made. So, so somebody my age uh, once again, younger baby boomer are thinking about, you know, what does life look like at 70? Well, I mean, if I've got X number of dollars and I got it invested with Reggie Armstrong, I'm scared crapless that the Fed is going to make another fatal mistake. The government's make a, going to make another fatal mistake. They'll print $5 trillion worth of capital in the name of COVID relief. Um, who's got all of that money now? Let's talk about the $5 trillion that was printed during COVID. I mean, it's, eight, it's nearly $9 trillion on the balance sheet of the Fed. But let's, for argument's sake, round off and say $5 trillion is all about COVID. Prior to COVID, the average individual, client of a bank, had $400 in his checking account. That number went up to about $1,260 during COVID. Now it's back down to about $317. Where is that money? I mean, it's in big business. Uh, the majority of people took that money and bought something from Walmart or Amazon or Lowe's or Home Depot or you know some of these other big boxes. A lot of it went to
2: government. And public, I mean, sure, public but the majority of it went, right? but, I,
0: but not the money. Not the money in the checking account. The checking account. That's right. They I mean, flowed, the money it, it flowed, flowed back up. to big business. I mean, you know, I, I've given this stat a hundred times, that I, it doesn't make people anywhere near as furious as it should. The phone should ring off the hook and say, Ken, who do I call about this? That the only sentence I should say is of the 8.3, excuse me, of the $8.9 billion that made its way into South Carolina from the CARES Act, the first CARES Act, 6.3 of the 8.9 went to government agencies in the state of South Carolina. Why are you not furious about that? Why are you not demanding some sort of accounting from those in charge? And this was federal money. I mean, the state had very little to do with that. I mean, I know people in the General Assembly that wanted to help business, but the federal dollars came with strings attached, and it was to give money to school districts and universities and, you know, county governments and city governments. The, the, the state of South Carolina has never been as flush with funds as it is today. Why? How many public sector jobs were lost during COVID? How many public sector agencies were decimated during COVID? Why in God's name did the public sector escape any sort of financial um, punishment or penalty as a result of COVID? I mean, how many government agencies were shut down? How many government agencies or government employees missed paychecks? I mean, it was a few. I mean, I read somewhere 1.2%. Some government contractors were were kind of – their, their jobs were discontinued in the middle of COVID. We know the devastation it did to the private sector, right? So, so when, the, when the federal government gives South Carolina $8.9 trillion, billion dollars, million, billion, trillion, they get $8.9 billion, and they basically say, of the 8900000000 billion we're giving you, don't you give much of that money to business. I mean, that's the private sector. We did shut their businesses down in the name of safety and and you know um what am I trying to say here? It's uh, lockdowns and, and shutdowns and social distancing, uh, public safety. There you go. Public health and safety is the word I was looking for. Um, but we're going to make sure that these um these states are flush, these counties are flush, these cities are flush, these school districts are flush, and these systems or universities and institutions
2: of higher learning are flush. Why are we not furious? that that happened all these democrat cities and states that were operating in the red to sure. begin with but I mean, it was a mail. i mean it was a bailout
0: it was to bail the states that have been irresponsible in their spending it was to bail them out how why does the public sector with all due respect and i mean this sincerely i got a lot of friends who work in the public sector and i love those folks as much as i love those in the private sector this was one of the most unfair deals imaginable it was gangster like I mean, it was like the mafia. I mean, it really and truly was. Hey, here's $8.9 billion. Take 6.3 of that 8.9 and give it to school districts, universities, and, and you know, um, local governments. I mean, the absurdity of that and, and why we
2: aren't more furious <laughs> is, is beyond me. Let's go to the phone. Mike
5: in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Hey, I think you got it absolutely right there, uh, Ken. You're right on the money because it was just theft and it was destruction of small businesses. The 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 employment engine of our economy was hammered on the most productive side of our economy was just mercilessly hammered on, restricted in every way with regulations and stupid stuff like this six-foot distancing. That's from the 1918 or something like that that's they didn't know they don't know they do know that the virus came from Wuhan and we paid for it and if you want to know where our money's going where that money's trickling off to that goes to Walmart and goes to uh Bezos and Amazon and such well it's buying um, bombs for uh the the Chinese it, it's improving their navy things like that. Uh, we have gone absolutely insane, suicidal, and crazy. And uh, I think at some point there'll be uh, the total breakdown, and all of these things will go away, and uh, we'll all be on the ground barefoot and trying to catch a squirrel to uh, stay alive another day. We, it, And uh, I'm really just tired of all this misdirection Oh, look over here. I got a talking point. Every time I see somebody come on the radio or hear somebody come on the radio or see somebody come on the television, they got a talking point. Oh, the Republicans did this. Oh, DeSantis is Satan. He's he's Satan. And there's a sheriff in Texas. He's a law and order man. He's going to get him. He's gonna he's gonna teach him a lesson for uh, giving them uh, uh migrants a free plane ride to Martha's Vineyard. He's gonna teach him a lesson once and for all. I, 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 he's law and order. Well, we ought to make him the head of the FBI. Make him maybe he can run for president. Who knows? This we are living in an absolutely insane time. I don't know how people got so crazy, but there was a stupid bomb went off somewhere. I think it's called Talk Radio's made everybody crazy. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> Appreciate it.
0: 843-66-10937. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one oh nine three seven. Everybody's a non-interventionist when inflation is rampant at home and there's elections at home. I mean, I'm not saying that we've forgotten about Ukraine, but we spend not a lot of time talking about Ukraine. Our listeners appear to be not very interested in what's happening in Ukraine. There's still a war brewing. Uh, There's still American, not lives at risk, but assets very much in play. Uh, And something happened over the weekend on a Sunday night appearance on 60 Minutes. President Biden said that the U.S. would intervene militarily if China attempts to take Taiwan by force. Since China has condemned the president's comments, um, reiterated that they will use any means necessary to defend its territorial integrity, its national sovereignty in Taiwan. Political analyst, host of The Truth Will Set You Free podcast, Anthony Russo is with us. Anthony, good morning. How are you? morning. How you doing, brother? So there's a little bit of walk back. I read an article in National Review over the weekend, excuse me, uh, last night about uh, the administration not walking back what the president said, but repositioning some of what he said. Uh, what, what do you make of what President Biden said on 60 Minutes?
1: Well, I'm pretty sure we're, they were already they were walking it back while the uh, the interview was airing. I don't know how they didn't have that prepared, knowing was there, there should have been somebody in the room um, that gave him his pudding as well as also was correcting him as he spoke. So, I, I, I again, it just shows the level of uh, he just doesn't he doesn't have control over what what he's saying nor over the country. It was a dangerous statement. Pelosi going to Taiwan a couple of weeks ago was dangerous on its face. And we still don't even know what the purpose was for her to be there to really butt against the Chinese government, which, again, I do think the CCP needs somebody to stand up to them. I just don't think our president is equipped to do that. We don't look strong enough at this moment. What we did, uh, the way that we've helped Ukraine and just essentially bled money into the, into the country to try to protect them, the way that we screwed up in Afghanistan, uh, we are a country that is allowing Uh, As the leaders of the free world, as the protectors, as we've been for so long, we're allowing these things to happen uh, based on our weakness. And then now when 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 he says this, when Biden says this during a 60 Minutes interview, not realizing how ridiculous he looks and confused. It just is, again, another sign of weakness.
0: But, Anthony, there's going to be a time in, American, in the American future that we need to intervene. We need to be a player on the global stage. And I'm concerned that the non-interventionist, and I'm, I'm a pretty non-interventionist Republican. I mean, I'm an American First Republican. I'm anti-globalism. I'm anti-intervention. I think we've made fatal mistake after fatal mistake in intervening places, put American treasure at risk that probably don't need uh, to be placed at risk. But But I still believe there has to be an open eye. And a, and a lack of naivete about about what is out there and how dangerous the world can be, and, and I'm concerned that it's going to be harder and harder and harder to convince the American people after Biden makes faux pas, after faux pas, after faux pas, when we need to be vigilant on the global stage. Is that is that something you're concerned about?
1: Oh, absolutely. And, and like you, I think there's a huge difference between Taiwan. Uh, and Ukraine. Uh, I think the, the Ukraine and Russia, and that's when I started to really, really eye what was going on in Taiwan. And I think uh, uh, China did as well to, to see, let's see how the United States handles us. We do have to protect uh, uh, Taiwan at one point, but when we do, it's got to be a strong, definitive move, not a confused looking leader answering a question on a ridiculous pu- uh, publicity stunt on 60 Minutes, which he failed. I, I don't know how you can get that many softballs and still completely fail an interview and that is where like you said we have to be rock solid uh when it comes to actually being being the the protector and looking at what's going on and china has a mission china has had a mission since the beginning of covid since well before it they've even changed their national anthem several years ago and it's much more totalitarian authoritative uh trying to take over the world and what they do to their Uh, what they they do to their people and what they do to some of the slaves, it is a dangerous island. Somebody needs to stand up to them. But when you've got a leader looking into the camera, confused at even making a, almost declaring war on China, uh, if you really look at it word for word, what he said, this is unfortunately probably not the time for us to show strength. And if we are going to show strength, you can't have the White House walking it back 20 minutes later.
0: Well explained. Anthony, thank you for your time. Have a great day. Take it easy. Kind of an interesting perspective there. I mean, I know we're jumping around here this morning, but we do a lot of that. These Fox guests are offered to us. We get a roster every morning, and i um, you take them when you can get them. I mean, you don't say, "Hey, uh, don't call now," because we're talking about the the Fed and you know inflation and COVID relief funds, and and sometimes they fit. Sometimes they. I'd normally try to steer the conversation toward the next guest, but sometimes it's pretty hard to do, especially when you folks participate and we're having a conversation or a debate about whatever. Um, issue we're talking about, and and sometimes it lines up and syncs up with what we've got in store
2: from Fox. Sometimes mm-hmm. it does not eight four three six six one oh nine three seven. But he did bring up the subject of the sixty Minutes interview, and you know, uh did you watch that? I watched a bit of it, some uh, of it, excerpts of it. Uh, yesterday, mean, again, the, the the White House staff has to walk back if the president doesn't speak for the country, then. And his staff does. I mean, is that really where we are? Well, I mean, to to me,
0: there's only one comment to be made in relation to Taiwan. We will address that when the time comes. I mean, that's the only comment to be made. You know, do you support a one China policy? We will address that when the time comes. I mean, those are the sorts of conversations you have with your military leadership, your your intelligence community, your planning. You you don't broadcast what you may or may not do. He said, yes, sure he did. We we will defend. I mean, we will. I mean, he basically said, "Men and women, we'll the send United Forces. States, yeah, right. we'll send forces it. to Taiwan." Um, so, so he's basically said to China, uh, "If you jump, I mean, if you make the move to to invade Taiwan, we're going to have a world war over Taiwan." I mean, that that's some absurd strategy. I mean, there has to be a plan, but the plan doesn't need to be made public. What does America do if China decides to invade Taiwan? Nobody should know. Nobody, there should be 20 people on this planet that know what we will do if indeed China decides to invade Taiwan. I mean, I understand some of the diplomatic uh, conversations, some of the trade, some of the uh, bartering back and forth, um, foreign de- diplomacy. I mean, I get all that. I mean, and that's that's complicated. That's nuanced, very nuanced and complicated. But but the president wanted to sound like a tough guy. And he, and he basically, basic. I mean, he basically suggested to the world... That if China invades Taiwan, there's going to be the two superpowers on the planet are going to be at odds. Simultaneously, while we're funding Iraq, um, defending itself (laughs) against Russia. Iraq. I mean, I'm sorry, Iraq, Ukraine against, (laughs) you know, defending. I mean, I'm thinking about Iraq and how bad a mistake that was. We we just make mistake after mistake after mistake. And once again, I think our foreign policies. No, let me back up. I think the foreign policies are very warranted to be discussed in public. I mean, I think the American public deserve to know where we stand on diplomatic matters relating to Iraq or Ukraine or Afghanistan or Canada or, or Mexico. I mean, I think the public deserve to know that. I don't think we deserve to know what our military intent is if, indeed, China were to invade Taiwan. I don't need to know that. You don't need to know that. We need to understand that China diplomacy. doesn't need to know no, that. No, China certainly doesn't need to know that. You better believe it. China doesn't need um, to know that. But Biden goes on 60 Minutes, and once again, um, you combine a liberal journalist and dementia, and you normally make mistakes. And and he did. I mean, he made a great mistake, but he does that all the time when they let him kind of ad lib and get off script. Every time he doesn't read, I mean, he, he's confusing enough reading the teleprompter. But when he's not reading the teleprompter, he's dangerous. I mean, at least somebody has said to Joe Biden, read these red letters on this clear screen and you'll be OK. You can squint, you, you can gargle the words, you can goof up and, and mispronounce. And try not to say
2: the part that says, end of quote. Yeah,
0: but, but, but that, there's no danger there. Repeat I mean, it, it's lying. embarrassing. I mean, I get it. it. It it displays a level of cognitive decline that you and I believe is, is in play. But he doesn't. I mean, there, there's no threat to the world. Biden reads teleprompter. Biden misreads teleprompter. Biden squints and, and stumbles around and can't half read the teleprompter. Okay, fair enough. Biden says to China, if you invade Taiwan, we're going to engage with our military assets. Whoa. Whoa. That's another animal. That's a bigger leap. And, and once again, I think we deserve to know diplomatically what our intent is. What sort of diplomacy and foreign policy are we conducting with China, with Taiwan, with Ukraine, with Russia? But, but as it relates to our military intent, you don't need to know, I don't need to know, the Pentagon needs to know and keep it a closely held secret, I guess the military leadership in conjunction with our political leadership, those on the Armed Services Committee. I mean, there's probably 100 people in the world that need to know what our intent is, and it should have already been planned. We should know exactly what we're going to do if China invades Taiwan. There should be no question. If China makes that move, we do nothing or we do something. And if we do something, we need to know exactly what that something is based on um, scenario A, scenario B, scenario C. But that doesn't need to be broadcast to the world. I mean, if I'm president, God bless you all if I am, but I could handle that better. <laughs> if I'm president and what's the guy's name? The, uh, the person works for 60 minutes. Oh, uh, he's one of their esteemed yeah, journalists. I don't know. A- anyway, I mean, if, if he says Scott Pelley, was yeah, Scott that Pelley there, you go. Scott Pelley says, um, you know, president Ard, if, if China invades Taiwan, what will be your directive to the American military leadership that is between me and the American military leadership. I am, I am perfectly equipped and able today, Scott, to talk about diplomacy and, and foreign policy and what negotiations we have been in with China, with Russia, with Ukraine, with these countries around the world, you know, NATO, the I mean, all these. And you could throw in, I assure you, we have a plan. Sure. I mean, that's tough. Th- th- there's no doubt about it. I mean, you know, and the plan will be in America's best interest. But you that's won't. A, you, you, you don't to need say. to know the plan. Certainly, China. But but Biden doesn't know any better. I mean, he just doesn't know any better. And he's there to be. I mean, it's a, it's a chance for him to be a tough guy. And if you if you notice something about Biden when he gets a chance to be a tough guy, he kind of likes that you know what i mean scrappy joe oh, yeah. from from scranton pennsylvania you remember corn pop yeah i mean that's what i'm saying i mean he likes to be that <laughs> he he kind of fancies himself <laughs> as some throwback you know what i mean i'll, I'll ball my fist up and take yeah. a swing at you um no you you sh- shuffle your feet where it is you shuffle your feet to get to. Uh, to where it is um, you're headed. Corn pop
2: was a bad dude, from what I hear. (laughs)
0: 843-661-0937. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Uh, Kind of rambling about this morning, talking about a lot of different things. I, I did listen to the interview Scott Pelley did with Joe Biden. He talked a lot about COVID, the end of COVID. Well, I mean, people are still dying of COVID. Most have been vaccinated that are dying of COVID. It's interesting what Denmark did. You know, Denmark is on um, the vaccine. Yeah, the D- Denmark is now excluding anyone over the age of, excuse me, under the age of 50 from um, having the vaccine. In other words, it's I don't want to say it's illegal. I couldn't find that word anywhere, but and they're strongly a discouraging
2: prescription or something. But I mean,
0: if, if there's some medical complication that you have, then they'll give you the vaccine. If you're under the age of 50, quite
2: the pivot from where we were to where we are um, today <laughs> but but he says the pandemic is over and then but they're doing all these things and related to the national emergency right the pandemic emergency well,
0: Rev, i mean but it's what you get when you elect a president not of sound mind i mean we can call trump crazy you can call trump outrageous you can call trump out of control i mean at times he was but I mean, there's no doubt about it but nobody questioned whether trump had the faculties to understand what he was doing if trump was being an ass he was meaning to be one right I mean, if he was intended to be outrageous, he he was intending to be outrageous. Biden does not have the the mental capacity right now in his life to clearly understand exactly what it is he's trying to explain or articulate. And he's not a guy in a senior home. He's not a guy, you know, um, waiting on. He's not the greeter at Walmart. I mean, with all due respect, if the greeter at Walmart is having some issues, nobody's world is rocked, right? I mean, hey, it's sad that Greeter at Walmart was having these issues and having a real hard time explaining articulating. He's the president of the United States. He's leader of the free world, and very few people believe that he has his full capacity. But, you know, um, we get what we deserve in good old U.S. of A. Let's go to the phone.
2: Sam and Darlington Good morning, Sam.
6: All right, guys. Uh Talking about uh, Biden um, making his heated comments about, you know, see going to go to war with China. Uh, he may not know what he's doing, but I'm afraid they are people who do, uh, who seem to have control in the United States government. And that is the very industrial complex and the various uh, contract and mercenary outfits are around, have headquarters around, uh, Washington and uh, it's fine you know those guys um, they when when there's trouble in the world and uh, uh, you know ramps up if there's a imminent war or threat of war with China then then we'll have to spend more on the military and of course they love that you know but the rest of us uh, what about us and uh, and the bringing it even back to the to the economy it's it's astonishing military spending and uh that's going to you know paid for with borrowed money that's going to lead to inflation or or with printed money it's going to lead to inflation so in order to control the inflation they got to raise interest rates and put us into a recession you know it's it's absurd and uh I don't know whether any president by himself can can stand against the the people who are making a profit on wars and rumors of wars, but uh, I think the people have got to the general public has got to kind of wake up about this, and maybe then the politicians will do the right thing and and uh, stop this kind of foolishness. Anyway.
0: Thank you, Sam. I appreciate that. I mean, and Sam and I are kind of on the same sheet of music here. Uh, the military-industrial complex has far too much authority and power and influence on our political system, whether you're Republican or Democrat. I went back and looked at the 2020 defense budget. It was about $800 billion. This year it will be a trillion dollars. So, So think about this, guys. Our defense budget exceeds a trillion dollars. Our servicing of debt is bigger than our defense budget. No principal, just interest. The interest on our debt payment by the time the Fed finishes raising rates this year will exceed our defense budget. Our defense budget is a trillion dollars annually. China's is about 250 to 300 billion. I mean, you can say, yeah, but who trusts the numbers out of China? Um, that, that's a pretty estimated but accurate number. I mean, there, there's been some pretty deep dives in what China invests in their military industrial complex. India is less than 100 billion. I mean, nobody else is over 100 billion i mean russia's at about 70 billion because they don't have any money i mean they just don't have the abundance of resources or a federal reserve as we do so when you really think about it we're going to spend a trillion dollars annually in the name of national security of money we don't have and and we're financing a large share of that so we've got two line items in our budget that exceed a trillion dollars i think we got four total i think medicare and social security exceed a trillion dollars and Um, and then defense spending is about a trillion and the servicing of debt is going to be over a trillion dollars. So in the preeminent superpower on the planet, and I guess the reason we're considered to be the superpower on the planet is how much we spend in our, um, in the name of our military industrial complex. And I'm not saying we don't need to be strong and mighty and, and, you know, um, curb any threat or menace that may rear its head and lands, um, far, far away or near, and uh, near and threatening to America, but 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 a trillion dollars. I mean, a trillion dollars annually spent in the name of national security. I mean, so something just doesn't add up there. I'm sorry that there's no other country in the world, not named China, that spends over a hundred billion, and we're spending one trillion dollars a year in the name of national security. Wow! Take a break. Back in a minute. 843 doctor Will Bolt, history chair, professor at Francis Marion University, is with us this morning rocking his Buffalo Bills shirt. (laughs) I don't blame you. Um, They may be the best NFL team out there. Maybe. I mean, mean, (laughs) who else is really, really good? Um, It's theirs to lose, dare I say. I I, I would probably argue the the Chiefs are good. Still good, yeah. But I think the Bills are better. I think Um, so. And the NFC, the 49ers are pretty good. The Buccaneers still have Brady. But I think the Bills are the best team in all of. Did the field, Did the Eagles win last night? Okay, freehold's nine is it? I figured yeah, the would, Eagles are really good. They're this good. Day. I mean, the Eagles yeah. are a good team. But the Bills seem to be right now cut above uh, everybody. But it's a long season, and anything can happen. Um, speaking of long seasons, we've had a long history. I've asked Doctor Bolt a couple of questions during the break, and I want to um, try to try to get him to educate our listeners. <laughs> um, and I mean this sincerely. So I'm well aware. Uh, I mean, I've read a lot about the colonial settlement. I've obviously read a lot about the American Revolution, uh, 63 to 73ish. I am familiar with Jeffersonian and Hamiltonian. This debate we had about the founding principles of our government is it is it um, do states' rights take precedent over a centralized, you know, a central planner form of government? What I what I don't know much about is the debate after Hamiltonian Jeffersonian. Um, Andrew Jackson to me is the the guy that kind of culminates that era of American politics, but post Jackson pre civil war, I know very little about, (laughs) and I got to believe if I know very little about post Jackson pre civil war, our listeners uh, don't as well. What was the issue or two or three, the debate or two or three that we had post Jackson
7: pre civil war? A lot of historians would refer to this sort of the 1820s to 1860, but uh, until recent, they would call it the Age of Jackson, because Jackson casts very long shadows over this period of American history. Jackson leaves the presidency 1837, uh, goes back to his home, the Hermitage, in Tennessee, but by this time we're we're really getting re- revved up into the slavery issue, and so this is now consuming American politics. Uh, 1846 to 1848, we fight the war with Mexico. Buy all of the southwest from Mexico as a result of the war. And as a result of the Mexican-American War and then the discovery of gold in California, suddenly the economy is flush. Uh, We have a booming economy, so we've solved all of the economic issues. And so the one thing that's sort of left over, the one thing we haven't solved yet, uh, is the issue of slavery. And so that really, from 1850 on, that's the only thing we're going to talk about in American politics. Okay,
0: so Jefferson gets elected as the third American president. Hamilton is killed.
7: Yep. Jackson
0: would have been an understudy to Jefferson. Oh, absolutely. A continuation of the Jeffersonian philosophy of government. Sure. Did anybody carry the water for Hamilton after he um he dies?
7: No, Hamilton right is killed in the duel with Aaron Burr, and he there was no understudy. I mean, he was the dominant figure in the Federalist Party. And the Federalist Party, by the time he get the Federalists will oppose the war of eighteen twelve, which turned out to be a popular war. And then the Federalists give themselves a self-inflicted wound at the very, very end. Uh, a bunch of Federalists will meet in Hartford, Connecticut, and they'll talk about secession. And they do this in 1814. Uh, and so the first serious talk of secession doesn't come from the South. It's from the, the Yankees up in the cold, miserable, godforsaken New England. And so they, these Federalists talk about secession right at the same time as the news arrives of Andrew Jackson's great victory at New Orleans so, again, this just the the Federals have egg on their face. It's they they look like you're committing treason while the country is celebrating this great, glorious victory. And so they cease to exist as a political party after that. And so you have just the the Jeffersonians are the only game in town. So Jackson wins uh, the election in what year? Jackson runs in 24 and loses loses, in the divide. And when it goes to the House and then wins in 1828.
0: Okay, so he gets elected in 1828. He serves until...
7: Uh, He serves just two terms, adhered to the tradition of George Washington, uh, and leaves when his term expires in 1837.
0: Did Jackson realize the political debate was going to center around slavery, and what did Jackson say about slavery as a political issue
7: in America? I mean, Jackson was an incredible nationalist, and when the, the state of South Carolina in Jackson's presidency talked about and contemplated secession. Jackson said, no, you can't do this. The union is permanent. It can't be dissolved. And when the Civil War starts, Lincoln, of all, when he looks for inspiration, he doesn't go to Thomas Jefferson. He goes to Andrew Jackson. Now, of course, Jackson believed in the union, but Jackson was also a slaveholder and believed that Southerners did have the right uh, to own slaves. And so he was kind of on the horns of a dilemma. And Jackson... Unfortunately, it was probably pro-slavery. Jackson's big action in in here in South Carolina when the abolitionists uh, began bombarding, sending uh, anti-slavery literature to Charleston, uh, Jackson told the postmaster, don't distribute it. In fact, go ahead and burn it if you want. So So who
0: would have been the central figures in the political debate around abortion?
7: You I mean ab- abolition. Yeah, I mean
0: on both uh, sides. I mean the, the, the I mean because you you said something a second ago and I never sure. thought of this.
7: So there was a debate about whether the Constitution was pro sure. or or anti slavery. Sure. And the large majority of the people, North and South, especially in the North, thought the Constitution is a pro slavery. Explain document. that.
0: Expand upon that. It can't. The Constitution was about <laughs> liberties and freedoms sure. and and pers- How is the Constitution a pro? Slavery document. Well,
7: you had to make a a deal with the devil, unfortunately. There's no way that the Southerners were going to agree to ratify and join this union if they didn't get certain protections. And, of course, the, the word slave or slavery isn't anywhere in the Constitution, but it talks about persons, such persons, persons held to a term of labor. And so the biggest defender of slavery was South Carolina's John C. Calhoun. And he
0: based that on what? His defense of slavery was racism or constitution? And that was constitutional.
7: And again, he looked at the, the Fifth Amendment is what Calhoun would hang his hat on. And the Fifth Amendment says you cannot be, the government can't take your life, liberty, or property without due process. And a lot of the Northerners said, you got us there, John. I mean, and so this is why uh, it's not the, the Civil War, it's not the Emancipation Proclamation. It's the thirteenth Amendment which finally gets rid of slavery in the country.
0: Okay, let's go all the way back to the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson tried to address the Declaration or tried to address slavery in yeah. the Declaration of Independence more aggressively than he
7: probably gets credit for. Sure. Again, this is you can see Jefferson grappling with this this great contradiction, unfortunately. Right? We're here where we've got all these problems. We're complaining or saying that all men are created equal. But yet, at the same time, a lot of us, and again, at this time, uh, up until 1790, you had slaves in 12 out of the 13 states. Only in Massachusetts were there no state, no slaves. And again, a lot of the the slave ships, the slave trading ships, were outfitted and run by New England captains. So again, this is a national problem, and Jefferson kind of realizes we're, we're being hypocritical. So Jefferson put in the declaration that the king— has fastened slavery on the 13 colonies and the other delegates said uh we don't want this fight right now and so they just deleted this section from the kick the can down the road
0: okay when did the proverbial worm turn when did when did the anti when did the abolitionists gain momentum and appear to be uh winning the debate about whether (laughs) or not we needed to abolish
7: slavery starts probably around 1831 uh, a yankee abolitionist william lloyd garrison starts to publish a newspaper it was called The Liberator. And so this really kind of opened up a lot of eyes of people in the North. And you would almost say that Garrison was almost like the, the National Enquirer. He shocked his readers. He put these horrific stories of slavery, embellished a lot of them. But a lot of the people of the North, if you're in Massachusetts, Vermont, you're, you're hundreds of miles away from an area where slavery is legal. But they again began to read these stories. And again, Garrison was a, a constant agitator. And so slowly but surely throughout the 1830s, more and more Northerners uh, are getting wrapped up in this. They're joining anti-slavery societies. They're putting pressure on the politicians, the guys they sent to Congress uh, to do something about slavery as well. Was
0: there a politician or two that once they became abolitionists, once they became in support of, um, you know, outlawing slavery or abolishing slavery, that the debate began to to turn. I mean, John C. Calhoun would have been the sure. uh, the loudest voice in support of slavery? Who would have been on the opposite
7: opposite end of the spectrum to Calhoun? Again, at first, most of the Northerners regarded these abolitionists as the lunatic fringe, and they, in fact, saw them. So as, there
0: was no prominent politician in that moment saying, until, "Let's abolish slavery." Not
7: until you get to the 1850s. And so, most of these these abolitionists, they're, they're cranks. And again, most Northerners saw them as a bigger threat to the Union than the Southern slaveholders. And sorry, right, most of the Northerners were just kind of said, "Not not not yet. We don't we don't we don't think it's a big enough issue just yet." once you get to the 1850s you can't be opposed to abolition in the north you're going to get outflanked, and you're going to lose an election so ever just what every politician has to be against slavery so what politician or political event led to the civil war we got a, a series of events in the 1850s you get the compromise of 1850 explain that which is a whole bunch of things this brings california into the union is a free state. So we
0: settle the west. I mean, the Louisiana mm-hmm. Purchase has been done. Lewis and Clark have done their thing. Um, We're starting to open things. up. Doctor Bolt said he's real surprised, or he thinks Jefferson was real surprised <laughs> that Lewis and Clark came back. I mean, you send them out there, you commission them to go explore, <laughs> and, and you anticipate something will eat them or kill right. them. I mean, I'm sure of that. And here they show back up, and he's like, "Holy crap!" I mean, these guys made. They, not only did they go. They
7: came back how many years later <laughs> Yeah 3 if or 4 5 years If I told you years. I'm walking out to California and you'd probably say <laughs> From where from Louisville from, right from from here and you'd probably we're, we're gonna need somebody else on Tuesday mornings. So he ain't coming yeah. back. I mean, I'm a man's man, I like to think, but I mean let's let's be honest, man. it's gonna be something's gonna eat me, man. But, right, but they go. They, the, yeah, they, they go and come back. Yeah, then, yes, exactly. Unscathed. It's fine. It's like, hey, how you doing?
0: But but I want people to understand that, that by then we're not thirteen colonies. I mean, it's not the sure. South and the North. I mean, they, we, we become an expansive nation. Oh, I mean, sure. There are many, many acres that we've declared our own. We settled right. Louisiana Purchase. Uh, happened, took place. Um, so, so, so go, go back to the event. So Jump it around 18, on, on you.
7: 1850 is okay. the, the compromise. The North gets California, but other sections of the the compromise 18 tilt towards the South. We pass a new fugitive slave law, which makes it very easy for Southerners now to go into a federal court and get a an escaped slave and take him or her back to slavery. And so, this angered, bothered lots of Northerners. Then four years later, you get the Kansas Nebraska Act, which opens up all of the the rest of the Louisiana Purchase, and it opens it up for settlement, but there's no restriction on slavery. And so this means that Southerners can go in there, and it makes it possible that slavery can take root in all this land. And so you have what comes known as bleeding Kansas, because you have like Northerners and Southerners both going into the area, trying to win a majority. And so they begin fighting it out. You got over 100 people killed. And then the next big event is you have in 1857, the Supreme Court decision, Dred Scott versus Sanford, and this is a very, very pro—it's uh, a Calhounian decision, even though Calhoun is dead. The Chief Justice Roger Tawney essentially took a lot of Calhoun's arguments and now made them the law of the land. And a lot of Northerners, when they read Tawney's decision, and that Tawney said, slavery follows the flag, the fear was, well, now so, a Southerner can take their slaves, their property, into New York or Pennsylvania. And here we're starting this industrial revolution— And many in the North thought you can't have free labor and slave labor side by side. It's gotta be one or the other. So Southerners will take their slaves up north and that will kill off the Industrial Revolution. So that terrified the people in the North.
0: When was the Civil War inevitable? From your perspective, when was it unavoidable that we were going to end up in a war between the states? Yeah.
7: It's the Kansas Nebraska Act, many would say 1854, because it kills off the Whig Party. And the Whig Party had been around since Jackson. Once the Whig Party collapses, your northern Whigs, such as Abraham Lincoln, become Republicans. And the Republican Party was opposed uh, just to the extension of slavery. That's the only thing it cared about. The Republican Party isn't trying to make recruits in the South. It's a sectional party in the North. And again, we're off to the races at that point. And
0: Lincoln is doing what?
7: Up until Kansas Nebraska. He was a former Whig. He's making money as a railroad attorney. And a lot of the... Guys, the engineers that he will meet were former uh, army officers, uh, and Lincoln will then pull them out of obscurity to command Union armies during the Civil War, but he's making lots of money in the railroad business defending his clients. Gets back into politics with the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, becomes the the key figure, uh, the leader of the Republican Party in Illinois, takes on Stephen Douglas in 1858 for a Senate seat. He loses, but the race was closely watched. And a lot of his fellow Republicans said to him, Abe, uh, are you actually running for another office? Are you running for president? And Lincoln smiled and said, the taste is in my mouth. And so Lincoln, already in 1858, uh, knew he was going to lose. But again, by attracting a national following, uh, he's from the Midwest, sort of a a moderate area. He had planted the seeds, a brilliant political maneuver on Lincoln's part. But
0: had Lincoln's political (laughs) history prior to that moment been as an abolitionist?
7: no it hadn't he, he was had been, very inconsistent exactly again this wasn't a major issue he was an old henry clay wig all right we need a strong national bank a high tariff right high prices for public lands all of the economic issues and then he kind of came like many americans it's like all right, this issue of slavery isn't going away it's a stain on the national fabric we got to deal with it
0: let's take a break i sure. want to come back and talk about lincoln in particular during that period of time the evolution of Abraham Lincoln. President Abraham Lincoln. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. doctor Will Bolt, history chair, Francis Marion University, rocking the Buffalo Bill shirt. Again, maybe the best team in the NFL. Not maybe. Right now, they are the best team in the NFL, but it's a long
2: season, and a lot sure, of things but- can happen. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jim in Florence. Hello, Jim. You're on the air.
7: Hey, good morning, guys. So, question for Dr. Bolt. Uh, I really kind of see Lincoln's war as the beginning you know, of the military industrial complex, uh, you know, was it Lincoln's neighbor in spring, uh, Springfield, Illinois got the, uh, 10 cup contract and became a millionaire. Um, no coincidence there, right. <laughs> uh,
0: um, you know, and anyone who really thinks that, uh, women sent their 15 year old sons to go abolish slave, you sent them to war to abolish slavery or defend slavery. Doesn't understand the human experience.
8: Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying it wasn't about slavery, but it certainly wasn't only about slavery. But who profited off this war? Because, let's be honest, all wars are about making money. So who profited? And I'll leave it there. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Jim.
7: Appreciate that, my man. Dr. Bolt? Oh, sure. Lots of you. didn't have a—I think the the caller is right. This is sort of—you would almost see the, the genesis of a, a military-industrial complex. Uh, certainly, again, the government—the war was costing the National Guard more than $2 million a day. Uh, by the end of the war. So certainly any individuals who are producing uh, these materials. And most of the the war producers were shoddy guys, were producing very poor uh, equipment, sort of taking advantage of the government. But again, Lincoln had, had tunnel vision. He he said to these guys, here's a blank check. Write whatever number you feel comfortable with. We're going to win the war. Uh, and so we'll worry about uh, the debt after. But again, the caller is certainly right that coming out of this, you have what some of called call the Yankee Leviathan, that the national government has just gotten too, too big and powerful. Uh, Again, I've I've used this analogy, but once the toothpaste is out of the tube, you can't put it back in. And, of course, the South is defeated and crushed. This gives the North a decade of free reign to essentially do what they want, uh, to funnel funds, uh, to put in place high tariffs, and to really start uh, the industrial revolution to put it on steroids at this time. And by the time the South is back up on its own two feet, it's too late.
0: Okay, is Lincoln misunderstood? In other words, they're I mean we got a Mount Rushmore. Sure. And we got yeah. Jefferson in Washington. Yep. Uh we know their contributions. We've got Roosevelt. He was president when they commissioned uh the, the construction <laughs> of Mount Rushmore, so we kind of get that. <laughs> um Lincoln was here, here here's here's my question. Was Lincoln a anti slavery crusader before he became such a prominent figure in this national debate?
7: No, probably not. And Lincoln he's a smart, a brilliant politician, kind of realized which way the winds were blowing. And that if he wanted a career, uh, if he wanted a successful career in policy, it would be best to get out in front of this issue. Now, uh, Lincoln, of course, didn't like slavery throughout his whole life. But again, realized that if he put his finger on the pulse of a lot of people, uh, that again, this was a winning issue. And Lincoln, to his credit, always said that He never had a political thought which didn't come from the Declaration of Independence, and so when the Civil War starts, the Abraham Lincoln is fighting the Civil War, the war to end slavery. He's clothing himself in the mantles of Andrew Jackson, a slaveholder, and Thomas Jefferson, a Southern slaveholder, as well.
0: Why did Jefferson? Excuse me. Why did Lincoln? Because I've always felt the 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 greatest accomplishment of Lincoln was post-war when the South lost. Excuse me. Lincoln chose to try and look forward right. instead of looking in arrears. What about him? What what made, Was there advisors? Was it his consciousness? What about him said, let's not revisit the mistakes of days gone by. Let's move forward and advance the nation.
7: Right. Well, Lincoln's philosophy was <coughs> by the end of the war, when he, he told Grant famously, let him up easy. You know, we're not going to. And of course, Lincoln is assassinated, doesn't really get to to put his vision in place. But again, Lincoln certainly didn't want to have hard feelings. Uh, there weren't going to be prosecutions. You know, We weren't going to drag the son of those out in front of a firing squad and uh, try to Why did he trees. choose that,
0: Dr. Bolt? I mean, why did he choose to? Because he was, I mean, there were several northern military leaders oh, sure. who wanted to Absolutely. Uh, exact as much pain mm-hmm. and anguish and, and punish people for being on the wrong side of a war. Okay. What, what about Lincoln do you believe led him down that other road?
7: Well, Lincoln serves just one term in Congress. But I think Lincoln is a very likable guy. He was the guy that, at any big meeting, he would make it a point to try and get to know who you are. He'd come up to you and say, hey, I'm Lincoln from Illinois. You know How you doing? And so Lincoln did have a lot of friends. In fact, he was very good friends with Alexander Stevens, the Confederate vice president. He kind of kept in touch, and they, in fact, they corresponded all right up until the start of the Civil War. So again, Lincoln knew a lot of these guys, and so was willing to kind of turn the other cheek. But no, as you said before, there were a lot of Union officers in the military and a lot of the guys they had gone to at West Point and after the Civil War the southerners would try and meet with them or write to them uh, and the northerners wouldn't have anything to do with them the northern generals and the southerners will say well why and the response was usually just very simple you took an oath I mean when they had been to West Point when they had been in the military and then when they had joined the south they had violated that oath and that was simply a bridge too far. Did, past it. did
0: Lincoln accept, to Jim's point, did Lincoln accept that the war was much more
7: complicated than just slavery? Oh, for sure. Well, again, Lincoln at first didn't want to talk about slavery. Right? The union must be preserved. And it's only right as the casualties are beginning to mount up by the time we get to the, the fall of 1862. This is where Lincoln changes and where he issues the Emancipation Proclamation. He says it has to be a new union, a union free of the original sin of Of slavery. But again, right, the large, large majority of young men who volunteered early on were not abolitionist crusaders. They were going, they saw this as a way to preserve democracy. And so over time, though, more and more Northern soldiers are enlisting for that. And in fact, you've got uh, the Sixth Corps when they march to Gettysburg, the biggest corps, 20,000 men, they're marching in the middle of the night trying to get to Gettysburg and to bolster their spirits. Uh, The entire corps, 20,000 men, start singing John Brown's Body. Uh, Liza Mouldering in the great, the great anti-slavery song.
0: Is it fair to say, I mean, I'm a Southerner, and I like to be optimistic about the South. I accept responsibility. I accept um, culpability in the Civil War as a, as a region of the country. Is it, is it fair to say that the Confederacy is being misunderstood? It was not all about that one single issue.
7: Well, the Confederacy was probably bigger in death than it ever was in life. And then most of the guys. Explain that. I mean, expand upon that. Early on, right, there was support for the Confederate. Lots of young men came rushing rushing forward and wanted to enlist. The side in both North and South thought, oh, the war's going to be over in a couple of months. I got to get off the farm. I got to run and join a regiment now. Well, after the things start to kind of go South and the war drags on, and now you're being conscripted, uh, being forced to serve, uh, lots of guys are trying to find ways out. And of course, the, the main requirement was if you wanted to be a, a Civil War soldier. Uh, you needed two teeth that connected so you could open up the cartridge box so lots of guys now start taking out the players uh, and pulling out teeth so they can vo- avoid having to serve in either the northern or the southern armies. But again, a lot of guys who, again, just didn't want, felt, were kind of forced into if all of the guys in your community are rushing off or volunteering. And if you're a small-town USA, uh, you can't sit this one out. And so you got to go. But again, by 1864, 1865, a lot of southerners, uh, when the sun sets, and you're just kind of look around it's like I'm, I'm i'm gonna go to the rear right and get back home i'm getting letters from my wife my mother the yankees have come through they've burned our crops destroyed our homes uh i'm going to check this one out
0: Let, let's stay here for a second so you're a historian that there are many historians on college campuses today and in high schools across america um, lecturing to students about the civil war do historians lecture about the civil war as if it were a matter of slavery or was it a matter of slavery and other ancillary
7: issues? Sure. I would imagine right now, though, given the political climate and where we are in certain areas, it's just about slavery. But again, there's so much more to it uh, than just that. So
0: so why have historians chosen, not you particularly, but as a profession, why have they chosen to teach the Civil War as if it were an issue, uh, uh, excuse me, a war about a single issue, that issue being slavery? Well, it, just kind
7: of, it kind of elevates, and a lot of this comes... Post 1960s, post Civil Rights Movement, again, the current political agenda can oftentimes influence how we interpret and view the past. But again, kind of pre 1960s, um, you know, this was a medal of states' rights for a lot of individuals. There was the economic differences. But again, after the 1960s, it's uh, if again, if you're going to write a book on the Civil War and say had hey, nothing to do with slavery, uh, no publisher's going to touch it.
0: But and, and I'm not arguing. It. I'm not arguing it had nothing to do with slavery, but it had sure. to do with slavery and a lot, of, a other- lot of other
7: things. Well, that's right. It's a, there's a multifaceted.
0: So, are conflict. we doing? And here's where I'm being a radio show host for a second and a hardball interviewer. So, are we doing a disservice to our young people in teaching them that the Civil right. War was solely about slavery and nothing and else? Prop-
7: yeah, probably. Again, but it's it's the po- the path of least resistance. All right, just beat it in over your head. This is kind of simple. Keep it straightforward. Again, an instructor is going to say there's there's a lot more to it than just the issue of slavery. But again, hey, unfortunately, high school teachers, we there's so much that we have to cover. Sure. And so it's just only there's only it's only so many hours in the day. If you want to go down that road, you're going to have to cut something else. Unfortunately. But but post
0: Jackson's presidency and prior to the Civil War, the American political debate, by and large, centered on slavery. Is that that, fair to say? By the mid-1840s. For 30 years.
7: And certainly into the 1850s, it just accelerates. And so it consumed everything else, all the oxygen in the room. Did did people predict the Civil War? Well, the ironic thing is that John C. Calhoun of South Carolina dies in March of 1850. And everybody is coming to see him. He's dying of consumption, tuberculosis. And to a group of individuals in 1850, John C. Calhoun says, gentlemen, uh, the union is destined to dissolve. I don't know what will cause a dissolution. It's probably going to be in 10 to 12 years, but it seems to me that it will result from a presidential election. So in 1850, on his deathbed, John C. Calhoun predicted pretty much to the year when the Civil War was going to start in 1860 over a presidential election. Wow. That's kind of interesting
0: and very prophetic. Thank you very
7: much for your time. Dr.
0: Will Bolt, History Chair, Francis Marion University, I mean, that's kind of selfish on my part. I told Rev this morning, I mean, I feel like I know a lot about American history. I've tried to study and research and, and understand it, grapple with it, come to grips with it. But but there's a period of time post-Jackson, pre-Civil War that I think gets lost in the mix. And I mean, I assumed it had a lot to do with slavery, but Dr. Bolt has given a, a very historical accounting of where we went from his favorite president, who would have probably been a Buffalo Bills fan right. had he been uh, alive today, <laughs> to, to where we got uh, during the Civil War. Take a break. Thank you, Doctor Bolt. Thank you. We'll guys. take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Instead of getting Doctor Bolt to talk about the the issues of the moment, I felt like it would be important to. I mean, he's got a tra- he's, he's got an abundance of knowledge and research he's done and um, education he's attained on. The historical context of America, and I think to, um to have him in here for thirty or forty minutes and and basically argue about whether Trump should do this or DeSantis should do that is a misuse of his time. So I, I decided a couple of weeks back that I would um I would find a an issue that I mean if I find it interesting I got to believe some of you find it interesting and I think I've done a good job uh, of making up for lost ground of going back and better understanding the history of America that the political nature of America uh, the political mannerisms and nuances of America. But one thing I was not real aware of is post, I mean, I've read a lot about Hamilton and Jefferson. I read a lot about the revolutionary war, the Confederacy and all these, you know, civil war, but that period after the, uh, kind of the end of the J- Jackson to me would have, um, represented the end of the run of Jeffersonian government. I'm not saying that you know, the day Andrew Jackson was not president was the end of Jeffersonian government. Um, but but I you know, that period between the end of Jackson's presidency and the beginning of the Civil War is one that I had very little understanding of and knowledge about. And I think Dr. Bolt just
2: explained it was all about slavery. Let's go to the vault. I've enjoyed uh Dr. Bolt uh, in those historical yeah. it's just been it's been great. I adds
0: a little it. bit of depth oh, to yeah.
2: this very shallow um <laughs> radio show. Let's go to the vault. Bert in Florence. Hello, Bert. You probably
9: should hover over that shut-me-off button because I'm about to say something that y'all probably won't like. There are two points in history where we just throw math out the window, and that's after the Holocaust and after slavery, after the Civil War, because the math doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. The history will tell us we brought in Seven million slaves during the same period where it says our population was 1 million people. Now, even if they're talking about 1 million white people, which is possible, that means there was seven black people for every white person in this country. I don't believe that was ever the case. Not ever. But the math doesn't apply. And for some reason, every time you talk to a supposed historian – about that period
0: that's not a supposed historian he's a historian
3: well you may not agree with what he said but
0: it suggests he's a supposed historian is just inaccurate
9: okay well let me put it this way the historians are taught things that don't add up and they reteach things that don't add up and i've never had one explain to me how math during those periods of our history just went out the window. But what are you arguing,
0: Bert? That there was no such thing as slavery and no such thing as the Holocaust? Oh,
9: no, no, I'm I'm not arguing that at all. What I'm arguing is, uh, and uh, all right, let, let me compare it with something. After the Holocaust, they had there was a world. You know, there were this many Jews in the world, and then they started putting money on the table, and the number of Jews multiplied ridiculously I mean it was amazing and the number of people who were supposedly affected by it the Holocaust uh, multiplied ridiculously same way with slavery and we're watching it right now because they start talking about reparations all of a sudden uh, everybody who was white must have owned slaves or had something to do with it you're all a bunch of racists you all okayed slavery but you go back to the time and that was not the case even when the war started, it was not about slavery. That got stirred into the mix. And now almost any historian will will make like that was the whole reason. The North wanted to free them and the South wanted to keep them. At the height of slavery, what was it? Six percent of the country owned a slave. Six percent.
0: Thank you, Bert. Appreciate it. But, I mean, when you think about it, I don't care if it's six or 60. No human being has a right. To own another human being, I mean, to, to to me, the percentages don't matter. I mean, I get the argument about you know how pronounced slavery was, how many Confederate soldiers and families owned slaves. I understand some of that debate, and I'll accept that as part of the debate. But to suggest that the Civil War was not worth fighting because only six percent of people owned other human beings, I, I just can't get there. I mean, I, I respect everybody's opinion, and the one thing we've always done here is allow people to express themselves and their opinions without fear of being shut down or cut off or or, or disallowed. to I mean, I I think that's that's the one beauty of talk radio. I mean, you're allowed to call in and express your opinion, however extreme I may perceive those opinions to be. But when you start talking about, okay, um, the Civil War is worth fighting if there's 60% of people who own slaves, but it's not if only 6% of people on slaves. We can dispute the numbers. I don't trust everything the government tells me. Uh, then now or forever. I mean I'll never trust what government tells me to be true. But slavery was real. And people deserved to be freed. And and that's what the war was largely about. I didn't say solely about. I didn't say it was slavery all slavery nothing, but slavery, but to suggest that slavery was not the major issue of the American Civil War is just not trying to understand history. Um, that's the reason I wanted Dr. Bolt. I thought I knew that post-Jackson pre-Civil War, a lot of the political debate in America was about slavery. Now, Burt may be right. It may have been closer to 6% than 60%. But, but for a country to endorse human beings being allowed to own other human beings had to be addressed. I mean, I wish it hadn't ended in six hundred thousand people losing their lives. I wish it hadn't ended in Gettysburg and and some of the other places. I mean, I think it's a stain on America forever. I mean, it may be the the perpetual curse of America, but but it had to be addressed. And, and yeah, there was states' rights. So the Confederacy is unbelievably misunderstood, as far as I'm concerned. But but I, I just can't go along with um, slavery was not as. Um, as widespread as some lettuce, it was still slavery. It's still a human being owning another human being, and and that's just—I mean, I could complicate it, but that's just immoral, unethical, wrong. Um,
2: let's go to the phone. Thomas and Manning is next. Hello, Thomas.
8: Uh, hey, how you doing? Good morning.
2: Hey, Thomas, how are you? Morning.
8: All right. Uh, just a quick observation that whenever we talk about slavery, it's an automatic white person, the whites owned slaves, whites owned slaves, whites owned slaves, whites did this. Who gets into the history book to say that slavery was widespread, as in other races owned slaves? In the South, there were black plantations, black slave owners. Some of the, One of the richest women in the South was a female slave owner who was black. She owned like two plantations. Uh, William Ellison was a rich slave owner that lived in the South. He was black. So Why does it automatically have to go to the white people did this? Why can't we're going to tell the history, tell the truth, tell the truth. Say it was widespread among many races. It was just not a white issue. Every race in history has owned slaves. And in the United States, other races own slaves, whether they were black slaves or white slaves or Native American slaves. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Thomas. Appreciate that. I mean, I'd stand by my comments. A human being. I mean, I'm careful to not say a white human being or a black human being. A human being has no right owning another human being. White, red, blue, green, yellow, old, young, Democrat, Republican, Gamecock, Tiger. Um, God's word tells me that every life is created in his image. And I, I never say whites and blacks. I mean, every time I argue my point on slavery, it is a human being. I mean, go back and listen to the archive. A human being has no right to own as a possession, a matter of personal property, another human being that includes blacks who own slaves, whites who own slaves, um, you know, Asians who own slaves. I mean, you know, slavery is still prevalent in the world today, I mean, there's still slave trafficking in the world today. Some of these third world countries, some of these underdeveloped, non-emerging, not non-emerging countries. I mean, they're, they're, you know, slavery is not widespread, but it's still there, but I'm very careful Now, now some aren't, but I am. I'm very careful to never say, you know, a white owning a black or a black owning a black or a white owning a white or an Asian owning an Asian. Mine is about human beings. And mine is a from a Christian perspective. uh, God loves everybody. God creates everybody in his image. So, So a human being has no right owning another human being no matter what their color creed ethnicity religion uh, political beliefs are period i mean that that's the way i end it but but i also accept that the civil war was about a lot of other things than slavery slavery was the primary focus slavery has become the political debate but slavery was not all the civil war was about back in a minute 843 Today is seven weeks out. We're seven weeks from the midterm elections. Today, 49 days away is our midterm elections. Might be a good day and a good time to kind of go through real quick. I don't want to go into great detail
2: and specificity. We'll do that when Kahaley comes on with us later this week. Um, but, but please do tell because I see these stories about the Democrats are poised to maybe keep the House. Okay, what do you make of that? I mean, you'd be a consumer politicalist. What do you
0: make of that story in Politico or TheHill.com or or The Wall Street Journal when you hear a story that says it seems that all the optimism the Republicans had are beginning to
2: wane a bit. It looks like that it's not going to be the red wave we anticipated or expected. Well, I guess the first thing I wonder is are they trying to just depress the – um depress the turnout so is that the
0: first thing you
2: think or are you depressed
0: i'm serious (laughs) because you'd be a great question i mean
2: does it depress you or does it 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 concerns me because you go from the last several months you're thinking oh this is a slam dunk it's going to be a red wave everybody talked about the red wave and i think how can it not be a red wave when you look at what's going on in the country now and then you start seeing well but, but maybe things. But stick so, with me
0: for a second. So why would you ever think in a nation as deeply divided as ours, there would be a blue wave or a red wave? I mean, if we're as divided as we profess to be, and you say we are, I say we are, yeah. Friel says we are, a Republican and Democrat pundit say we are. So in a nation this deeply divided, this evenly divided, what makes you believe
2: that any wave is achievable? You see where I'm headed? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. You, you, of course, for me, it's like, you know, things are so terrible. The well, I mean, of energy course. prices, yeah. the inflation. I mean, how can the American public not, you know, especially <laughs> the independents, not want to vote for a change of direction? I'll give you an interesting statistic that I found yesterday.
0: 65% of independents, two of three independents in America today, are less likely to vote for someone who supports Joe Biden's um, student loan forgiveness or transference. I mean that's a big number. Now, now once again, the media will try to convince you this is all about Dobbs and abortion and Lindsey Graham's making a big mistake. I think Lindsey made a mistake. I don't think Lindsey's policy's bad, but but I think the timing was a lot to be desired. Um, if we're going to debate abortion, let's do it after the midterms. I mean I've seen some of the um some of the recent registrations in Florida, Pennsylvania, Arizona. It doesn't matter in South Carolina. I mean, it doesn't matter how many Democrats register in South Carolina, new voters on the new rolls in South Carolina. I mean, it's not enough to tilt it to a, I mean, even a toss up. I mean, this is a red state. You know it. I know it. I'm New York the same way. Uh, so so, so c- campaigns and candidates and political parties can take questionable positions and, and it doesn't matter except in about six or eight or 10 states. I mean, that's just the nature of where we are in American politics. So, So here's where I think we are seven weeks out. I mean, I'm not going into great detail, but but here's where I think we are. Um, I think the in, in the House, I think the GOP picks up. Um, I, I don't have any. They'll end up with 240 seats. They need two, what, 18 or 19? 218 to govern, or they have a majority. They'll end up with about 240 seats. I think the best case scenario is 246. I mean, you look at toss ups and you know, lean this way, lean that way. I mean, you know, if, if the Republicans hit a home run, we'll wake up Wednesday morning, seven weeks from now, and they'll have 246 seats in the House. I think it's likely that they get about 238 to 240. They'll have a, um, a 40 majority, a 40-person majority in the House of Representatives. That's going to
2: happen. Now, what, so what do you make of the report this morning on Fox, for example, where they say Dems have this, you know, of course, their best-case scenario, they take the House, obviously. There, there's no way the Dems hold on to the House. That there's no way, but Trust the news me organizations and some of the polls I, I don't want you about, to believe I mean, that. I
0: understand that. I get that. Uh, but but they're, they'll never convince me. Rev Biden's approval is still in the 30s. I mean, excuse me, in the in the in the low 40s. I mean, it's it's less. I've seen one poll that has him at 45, and if you look at the cross tabs and the sample, it's about 20 percent heavily weighted to the Democrats. I mean, you, you always weight it to the Democrat because the Democrats a bigger political party. There are more Democrats in America than there are Republicans, but not by that margin. So when you look at the crosstabs and you see Biden's, because I saw one had Biden at 49. That's an outlier. So I dug in a little bit. What does what the crosstabs read? It was a paid-for poll. It was, it was trying to really get Biden to 50%. So the news story could be in USA Today or the New York Times could be, well, Joe Biden's on the rebound. I mean, his approvals are back at 50%. If if Biden's approval rating is really 49, then I'm wrong. And and if I'm wrong, the Democrats can keep control of the House. But his approvals aren't 49%. They're more like 39%. There's no way his approvals get less than 35, right? I mean, the Democrat base is about 35 or 6. So if Biden's approvals are at 40, that means his loyal and trusted base, plus about 4% of Americans, believe he's doing a good job. I think his approvals are probably around 40, 41-ish, from 39 to 42. I mean, that's kind of the range I think Biden's approvals are. And then you look at the wrong track number. And the wrong track number today is about 72, 73, 74%. If the president's approval ratings are less than 45, Biden's is. The wrong track number is greater than 70. It is. The Republicans are going to win the House. I mean, it's inconceivable that somebody could believe something other than that. But once again, the media out there what? Telling the news or creating a narrative? Of course, the media is <laughs> trying to generate a narrative that their Democrats are gaining momentum and the Republicans are in trouble. Now, the Republicans are nothing to brag about. I mean, they've, they've had their issues. They stepped in it with Lindsey Graham, trying to nationalize this abortion debate. Why? I mean, I get what Lindsey's doing. I understand if you're pro life, you don't want late term abortions in California. But you can't control that. We went 50 years with a burning desire for Roe v. Wade to be overturned and that authority be entrusted to the state general assemblies. That's where we are. But, but Lindsay's now offended that, that, you know, life is being taken in California. He can be offended, but it's not his job to legislate what happens in California. That doesn't mean he doesn't care. I mean, I care. I think it's terrible and tragic and horrific and a crime against God. That, that we're allowing certain things to happen in New York and California. But we said for 50 years, we wanted that power to be entrusted to the state governments. Here we are. And and we're not able to take yes for an answer. Now, now if I want to be real diabolical and go down this conspiracy theory road, another mile or two or three, Lindsay's doing the bin for Mitch McConnell.
2: Mm, explain.
0: Well, I mean, if, if Lindsay, if Lindsay wants to make the debate about abortion, what better way than nationalize abortion? What what better way to introduce federal legislation that federalizes government, excuse me, that federalizes the abortion laws and, and freaks women out, freaks people out? Uh, you know, once again, a lot of independents
2: believe, but you, okay. But you're talking about he, he, if he does this and it would cost, for example, the Senate majority for the Republicans, that's, if, that's if, doing McConnell's bidding? If the majority, if, if the Republicans take on the majority of the Senate in the
0: midterms, And it's Blake Masters, Herschel Walker, Dr. Oz, J.D. Vance. McConnell's done. And if McConnell's done, to some degree, Lindsey Graham's done. Out with the old, in with the new. If the Republicans gain control of the U.S. Senate, and all of a sudden they don't have to depend on Mitt Romney or Susan Collins to get something done because they've got J.D. Vance, they've got Blake Masters, they've got Herschel Walker, they've got Dr. Oz, they've got Adam Laxalt in Nevada. McConnell's done. I mean, he's no longer. I mean, he may run for a year. He may get majority leader. But, but the eventuality is um, he's a dinosaur. He's he sears in an Amazon world. And, and Lindsey kind of sees himself more in line with that than I think. Lindsey's afraid of this new movement. I think he's tried to play it both ways. I think Lindsey's tried to be respectful to McConnell and some of the um, establishment Republican orthodoxies. But, but I think he's trying to step out on a limb at times with Trump, with America first. And, and I think he creates problems for himself, but he's in a tough position. I mean, Lindsey's in a really, really tough position. Um, so so if, if Lindsey makes as an issue abortion on the day the inflation report comes out, I'm not arguing that at some point in time we shouldn't try to, well, I guess I am. I mean, I'm one that says, no, we got what we wanted, take yes for an answer, and let's move on. Does it still break my heart that California will have incredibly liberal abortion laws? Of course it does. I mean, it's sad what is going to happen in New York and California. But that's what we argued for 50 years that we wanted states to have that right. States now have that right. Leave it alone. Let's hope South Carolina can craft a pro life policy that their Republicans can deal with that that is fair minded and, and reasonable. I mean, life, incest, uh, excuse me. Um, rape, incest, life of the mother. At what point in time? Fifteen weeks, ten weeks, twelve weeks, uh, eighteen weeks. You know that there will be a there will be a conservative policy come out of the general assembly. Some will love it, some will like it, some won't care much for it. But it's the nature of politics. But but when you see the polling that says um, that abortion has breathed new life of the Democrats, okay, I, I'll accept that to some degree. But it doesn't address inflation. It doesn't address debt. It doesn't address the the forgiving of student debt. The independents are what matters. And and the right track, wrong track, approval rating of the president are the two that I always pay most attention to, and there's nothing about that that has moved. If Biden's approval ratings are where they were, and the wrong track number is where it was, how in the world do the Democrats have any wind in their sail? They don't. There's these bogus polls that trying to create a narrative that they do, and most people fall for that. And most people believe that all of a sudden the national debate about abortion is you know this is a republican from south carolina trying to take rights away from women i mean if you're this deep if you're an inch deep and a mile wide you'll go there but if you're an inch and a quarter deep you don't go there if you're an inch and a half you certainly don't go there if you're a foot deep you laugh at it you scoff at it you find it unreasonable so here's my projection you ready my projection is the democrats excuse me the republicans end up with about 240 seats in the house maybe 235 but, but I would argue closer to 240. I mean, you can write this down. Okay. Seven weeks from today, uh, seven weeks from tomorrow, we'll sit down. There'll be some p- competitive races. Won't be declared the winner uh, before then. But, but the, the Republicans will have at least 235, probably closer to 240. They'll have 52 seats in the Senate. They're going to win the majority in Senate. Mm. Th- there's no okay. doubt in my mind. I mean, Walker's going to win. Laxolid and Nevada's going to win. Uh, vance in ohio is going to win masters in arizona yeah it's getting real close it's going to be a hotly contested race i still have trouble with oz as bad as fetterman is and he is bad i mean he is god awful right now and the guy's got some serious medical issues i mean he does you know he doesn't need to be running for senate they've admitted that he has a real hard time right now communicating well, one of the prerequisites of being a senator is the ability to communicate. But but they're running interference for him and, and, and Pennsylvania leans a little bit to the left. I mean it's it's a um I mean America first is uh, c- kind of changed the the face of politics in Pennsylvania, but that's kind of the way I see it. And I think Walker wins not because of Herschel Walker, but because of Brian Kemp. I really think okay. I think Kemp's got coattails in Georgia, and I think Kemp beats Abrams by probably six points which is a big win in Georgia with Stacey Abrams and that organization and machines she's built. And I think Walker comes along, not for the ride. I mean, Herschel's been his own man, uh, but but I think he benefits enormously from Kemp doing so well in Georgia. And then you've got Carrie Lake in Nevada. Well, when I look at Nevada and I see the governor's race and I see her up four in the latest Trafalgar poll, I think that really leads me to believe. But I mean, those folks aren't go if they're voting for Lake, they're going to vote for Masters. They're not going to vote for Masters. They're going to vote for Lake, but but Blake Masters gains the benefit of Carrie Lake inspiring people and in Nevada to show up and vote because she's kind of a a charismatic candidate. I mean, math, Masters is a bit quirky. All of these dark cathedral excuse me, these dark enlighteners, all of these anti-cathedralists are really ah, awkward. Is that a fair word? <laughs> I think I mean, they're, so. Yeah. They're, they're awkward people. We'll do this. I'll show you how awkward they are. I sent Rev something. Um, last night about Peter Thiel, you got that where well, we can play it this uh, morning at some yeah, point down. Yeah, okay. Yeah, let's go to the phone. We got a call now
2: Daphne and Dylan. Hello, Daphne.
10: Here we go again. Lindsay never fails to come through for the Democrats. He, in fact, started with the cap and trade with Obama. He, in fact, failed to prosecute or even condemn Hillary. He, in fact, went on the houseboat with Manchin, came back and got 18 of his rhino friends to pass the infrastructure, non-infrastructure bill. And now he's trying to run for the Democrat to take the lead on putting it back into the federal government's hand on abortion so that he and Chuckie Schumer can sit down and negotiate. Uh, Lindsay counts on the Democrats running interference for him as they have in the past with the primaries here in South Carolina. He, in fact, has had a lot of help from the Democrats. So don't ever put his name in a sentence with honorable anymore. Thank you.
0: Thank you, ma'am. Appreciate that, <laughs> Daphne. Hadn't heard from Hadn't Daphne heard in quite a Daphne, while or huh? Good to hear from her again. So um, so in Nevada, let's go to the governor's race in Nevada. This will be interesting. Uh, the governor's race in Nevada has Lombardo, uh, the Republican, up 1.4 points. Um, and that would be that would be a pickup. I mean, that would be a GOP pickup. So uh, Laxalt in Nevada, Lombardo in Nevada, Lake in Arizona, and Masters in Arizona are probably going to feed off one another. Now, Blake Masters is still behind in Arizona. He's still behind about two points. Kerry Lake is up about four points in, um, in Arizona. So, so I think Arizona and Nevada, and here's the dynamic in Arizona and Nevada, and then we'll take our break. From what I've learned and what I've gathered, when, a, when an illegal immigrant invades our country, they're assigned a status. Once they're assigned that status as an asylum seeker, they don't have to hide any longer. They're awaiting some sort of hearing. That allows them to be granted asylum or not there's a process they go through but but from what i'm gathering in arizona Nevada, these people are being signed they're they're being given a status they're being assigned a status and as a as a result of getting that status assigned they become um quote-unquote asylum seekers and they can operate in the daylight I mean, they don't have to hide and run and then you know be, be afraid to be picked up by uh some sort of border patrol that has skewed the labor market, um, in the hospitality sector in particular in Arizona and and Nevada, and you know, Kahili tells me that some of this polling suggests that and it, Nevada, it's about thirty percent of its population are Hispanic. In Arizona, it's about thirty-one or two percent. They're both around thirty. I think Nevada may even be thirty-two or three percent. One's thirty-two or three, the other's about thirty. There's a little bit of difference, but it's not much. Roughly a third of the population in Arizona and Nevada are Hispanic. Now, that doesn't mean a third of the voting population is Hispanic. I think the voting population is probably 23 or four or 5%, but it's still a significant share. And I believe that in Arizona, the Hispanic vote is going to break for the Republican. In Nevada, the Hispanic vote is going to break for the Republican. And I think that we, we, Republicans have a good chance of winning the governorship in Nevada, the Senate seat in Nevada, and the governorship in Arizona and the Senate seat in Arizona, because of the Hispanic turnout and the Hispanic uh, evolution uh, of voting for the Republican instead of the Democrats. Um, I, I don't want to go too far down this road, because Robert's going to come on one day late this week, and we'll go through all of that. But but uh, right now, I think we'll wake up seven weeks from tomorrow, and the Republicans will have 235. Excuse me, yeah, 235 to 240 members of the House. 51 to 53 senators, and I'm pegging it at 52. I mean, I think they have a 52-48 majority in the Senate. Mm. Um, they can stop whatever it is the Biden administration is trying to do. Uh, now they'll be it'll be hard to govern because you got to you know you got the, the veto power the uh, the presidency, the executive branch, and it'll be hard to get legislation passed. But but at least you can stop and undo some of these things. You know, somebody asked me the other day, can they undo the bill Back Better? Ah, uh, I think they may.
2: You know the the the, the scale down because he'll never sign that. What well, I mean, would not. But,
0: but there's some appropriating. because we don't budget anymore, that there's some year-to-year continuing resolution appropriations. Oh, okay. That that I think. I mean, it's the it's the price you. I mean, you, they took the cheap out. They didn't work it through committee and subcommittee. It didn't become policy. It's basically kind of a tag along. On a uh, on a federal budget or continuing resolution, one of these omnibus bills. You've heard him talk about ominous bill, omnibus bill. Uh, that's kind of the way. And then once again, I'm, I'm I'm getting in the weeds here a little bit, having served in you know or having been a presiding officer of a body that had to do things like that. I think there's a way to unwind or undo some of what has been done because once again, it's not exactly policy. I mean, it's executive orders, and I think all you got to do is just not fund it. Uh, in, in essence, that's what I'm arguing. Mm. that The president passed these laws. The pa- president, we can argue they were um, usurping the authority of the, the, the uh, ex- uh, legislative branch or not, but they did it. The only way to stop it from happening is just don't give them the money. Don't appropriate the funds. And right now, when the executive branch does whatever they choose to do, they've got a friendly Congress, and the Congress says, well, I mean, that's what the president wants to do. Make sure the money's there. And I think the a Congress led by Republicans would say, "No, we're we're not we're not putting the money there. Starve them to death. I mean, just you know, don't don't give them the funds necessary to do what it is they're trying to do." Take a break. Back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Someone sent me a text a second ago. Um, if the Republicans gain control of the House and Senate, could they fund the wall via reconciliation? There'll be a lot of actions like that. I mean, it's almost like Constitution be damned. You know the executive branch has overstepped its bounds. The legislative branch has overstepped its bounds. We litigate everything that comes down the pike. So, I mean, if you're in the, I mean, if you're in the majority of the House and Senate, but you don't have the backing of the president, you got to get real creative. And I think you'll hear a lot of things about ominous, ominous bills and you know reconciliation and um, continuing resolutions. And that's where you need McConnell. I mean, in all honesty, that's where McConnell is such a okay. student. I'll make a prediction. If he'll play. I think Senator Lee from uh, Utah will eventually replace McConnell as the uh, what am I trying to say here? The the analytics guy in the Senate, the guy that understands you know the the Roberts Rules of Orders and the way um, the body works and functions and what you can do and and can't do. Senator Mike Lee is kind of a student of of the federal government, the U.S. Senate in particular. So I think when you look at you know where do you go from here as an America First Party? we got all these different personalities and, and people trying to win elections. In other words, if we wake up Wednesday morning in seven weeks and Masters wins, Walker wins, um, J.D. Vance wins, Dr. Oz wins, I don't think they'll all win, But but it'd be nice if they did. But if they all win, I think a lot of those will look to Mike Lee as the guy to say, hey, what can we and what can't we do? Can we do reconciliation? Can we do continuing resolution? Um, what can we do to end around this um dementia Democrat president to make sure we can, you know, finish the wall or or, or not forgive student debt, all these other um, sorts of things. But we gotta get him elected. And I worry about masters and the financial disadvantage he has in Arizona. The guy that got him this far is a guy that i'm real interested in peter teal but i'm gathering that teal is not going to make contributions yeah, what's up in the that? general i don't have any idea you mentioned I mean, that it,
2: this morning so so he really funded a lot of these candidates in their primaries
0: 15 million 30 million for vance and um and masters but
2: you've heard that he's not funding them
0: in the general. i've heard that he is making no contributions in the general election that makes no sense now, i'm not saying no contributions he may give somebody i mean he may send jd vance a check for 2300 or or blake masters i mean masters ran palantir and Vance is kind of a um, disciple of Teal in some way. I mean, you talk about this Tealism or these Tealist candidates. Um, he's just, he's a really interesting, curious That's guy. Weird. Well, I mean, we got a video here. I mean, an audio. Let's let's play that for a second. This goes back about six or seven years, I think. But this is at a tech conference. And Peter Teal's talking about business. Doesn't talk a lot about politics here. But something happened to Teal when Trump announced he was running. Uh, Teal's a, I mean, he's, he's once again Rev said i asked rev rev says he's a weird guy i said is he weird because of one thing or is he weird because of the the culmination of a lot of things and rev like i don't know man he's just <laughs> he's um he's just a weird dude i mean you know uh, he's, his personality is a bit quirky his demeanor is a little bit awkward um but but he does things that you don't expect someone who sounds the or un- looks like him to suspect. do i mean he's a big supporter of the america first agenda um and he made. I mean, he's made a lot of money. I mean, he's really made. Let, let's do this. But, this. but those
2: Silicon Valley guys, when you compare him to the other Silicon Valley guys, um, he doesn't fit the mold politically. No, I mean, they're they're not out there advocating and and and, and putting forth Republican candidates and primaries at all. But but here's the point. You talk about Silicon Valley guys. The Silicon
0: Valley guys. A lot of those guys are libertarians. They're just not politically motivated for some reason. Teal has chosen to be very involved in this when you look at the, the these innovators in silicon valley I'm, I'm serious rev a lot of these guys are libertarian i mean they, they border on anarchy i mean i've heard teal say out of his own mouth that his political um agenda or his, excuse me his political opinions are based on what what he calls anarcho-capital and that is the um the the the, 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 the ying and yang between anarchy and capitalism how do you reconcile um that in your own head and and body and mind and soul. And I mean, I'm like you, he, yeah, he's a weird cat, but, but he is a, he's a guy that when he speaks, it matters to this political movement because he has a similar position on China, on globalism, on trade, on, uh, on intervention. But, but here's Teal in 2015 or 16, um, talking about basically how did you get to be the guy that's able to contribute 30 billion, $30 million to two camps They don't ask him that question. But, but this is these are some of the financial decisions he made uh, early in his life that led him to be kind of a kingmaker.
11: Well, it's always, it's always dangerous to have absolute rules because, mm. um, you know, uh, we, we once went uh, at Founders Fund, we once went through a list of um, the absolute rules, and there were about 20 or 30 of them, and they add up and eventually you don't look at anything anymore. So there are always good shortcuts. Too many shortcuts somehow goes wrong
12: would facebook or palantir have made it
11: through those 30 rules <laughs> i wonder uh, you, you 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 always hope so in retrospect i think i think facebook facebook would have made it through regardless because um, you know it was it was just it was at a point where you know a company like facebook today would probably be valued not at 5 million but like more like 100 million uh, versus uh, you know having the same metrics when 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 i invested back in 2004 um, you invested at Facebook at a five million dollar valuation. Uh, yes, yeah. And they had a hundred thousand. They, know, they had a hundred thousand users. It was it was growing really fast. Um, they only needed money to buy more computers because there was so much demand for the service. So that's actually always a pretty good sign.
12: And Sean Parker introduced you to him to Zuckerberg,
11: or he had you. Heard Sean Reed, Reed had looked at it a little bit, so there were a few different points of contact.
12: What was the first meeting like?
11: You know, it, it was not like a show on Shark Tank. It was, uh, Zuckerberg was 19 years old. He was still pretty introverted. Uh, Sean did most of the talking. Um, so if you, you know, if you base it, people always exaggerate how important these pitch meetings are. Uh, Reid Hoffman um, and I had spent about a year looking at all these social networking sites before that. So we were, you know, we were ready to write the check before we, f- before we met and didn't really matter what people were gonna say.
12: And what was it about that business that made you so convinced it would be a game-changer? Because I remember at the time, you know, we weren't all convinced. There was something you guys knew that we didn't know.
11: Well, um, I don't know, a few different, different pieces, but I think, I think there was an intensity of usage that was already very, very big, was very promising. Um, it had all these network effects, which I think are never to be underestimated. There was something about the, the college market that was probably being underestimated. I think investors always have a bias to invest in things they themselves use and they undervalue things they don't use. So there aren't very many investors who are in college. So anything that's just big on college will be somewhat underrated systematically. Um, you know, I, I, we had, I, been There was a bunch of different things that added up like that. And take me to Palantir, because this is another one
12: of the major companies of our generation. Uh, or this last wave, what is that? It's worth ten billion dollars or something in that range. It's something maybe a little north of there. A little north of there, and you were an angel investor/co-founder of this company. Yes. And how much was that company worth when you started and invested in? It?
11: Well, we did we did the first angel round like eight hundred thousand valuation, and then you know we did a eight hundred thousand dollar valuation up from there. Loans yeah. went up from there. So. But you don't
12: angel invest anymore. You just do venture capital now?
11: You know, I, I don't I don't know if there's really sort of a bright line. You know, we do I mean um, we do everything from C to Series A to B, C, D, you know, all the way all the way up the spectrum. I, I would say my 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 single overarching idea, both in my book Zero to One and yep. in terms of investing, is that uh, that I believe you know I think most people always tell you, most business books, most business advice always how to be better at competing. How to compete more effectively? And I believe that the key is not to compete at all. The key is to do something that nobody else is doing. Um, the sort of uh, the politically incorrect word for it is that you should have a monopoly. Mm. We can we can debate at what points monopolies are good or bad for society. But from the inside, if you're a founder, early investor, early employee at a company, uh, you always want to aim for monopoly. And so and so, I'm I'm ready to invest. At whatever point i'm convinced it's going to be a monopoly
0: that's a pretty sound investment philosophy i'm I'm willing to invest at any point in time i think something could potentially become a monopoly invested at facebook at a five million dollar uh valuation he didn't say it was worth 500 million he said in today's world it would probably be valued uh, at the time they valued five million because i mean the the internet technology has uh, become a far more valuable asset it's it's a more proven commodity now than it was in 2004, and he invested and co-founded Palantir at a hundred thousand uh, dollar investment, and it's a ten billion dollar, or he said somewhere <laughs> upwards of ten billion. Look, I don't what know north of that I well, think I mean, it was his word. But, but but the point I want to make is the the America First movement includes people like that. I mean that's what encourages me. I mean when you hear Trump say the outrageous. Uh, you know what I mean? The, the 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 provocative. This the I mean, Trump's kind of the Howard Stern, right? I mean, he's the shock jock of American politics. I mean, people listen to Stern in New York City. Why? Because he might say something, and they didn't want to miss it. So Trump shows up politically, and why do you turn it on to a Trump rally? Why do you watch a Trump rally? Because you want to know what he's. I mean, there's no telling what this guy may say. Teal provides, and Teal and some of these other um, uh, associates. They provide what I would argue is the intellectual underpinning, and I think you're right, Rev. I think he's a weird dude. I think he's a very different kind of guy. But but no, and you can argue: is he dangerous? Is he smart? No. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's a dangerous, smart man. He's dangerous if you have built a machine that you don't want to, uh, anybody to threaten or or discover. And I mean, he, he just got—he's a really, really bright man who happens to be on our team as part of a political movement. And, and I guess the interesting part of it, how willing he was to contribute in the primary and how unwilling he's appeared to be to contribute in the general. I mean, that's odd to me and bizarre to me. And I have no idea what his reasoning is. I mean, I have no idea why he gave nearly $15 million to J.D. Vance and nearly $15 million to Blake Masters. I mean, there, there's personal relationships there. I mean, Vance is a kind of an acolyte. And you could argue, I mean, I know Masters is, I mean, Masters is a Tealist. I mean, he makes no bones about it. I mean, he ascribes to the Teal worldview, so to speak. He worked at Palantir. I mean, he was chairman of the Peter Teal Foundation. So Masters is directly, I mean, I, completely and totally intertwined with Peter Teal. J.D. Vance, not quite as much. But I think when you hear America first, you, you think, okay, country boys, hayseeds, you know, rural America, Contract worker. I think people in Silicon Valley that that don't ascribe to the notions of big government central planning. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of those guys are, are, are far more supportive of America First than you ever imagined they would. Take a break. Back in just a minute. The issue with the polling is the non-response bias. I mean, that's polling talk, but the, that 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 is the major issue: the the non-response bias. Trafalgar gives a lot of credence to the non-response. They're convinced that if you don't respond, like if you're an undecided, I mean, I'm just not going to respond. um, You're more likely than not to be a Trump voter. So they assign a certain percentage of what I call the, um, and that's what, I mean, in polling lingo, it would be a non-response bias. Now, now a lot of this goes back to the the Trump voter not wanting to answer questions from any pollster. In other words, the respondent rate is down about uh, half a percent. Um, you call 100 people to answer the question and accept the poll. 98 don't. I mean, that's hard to be in the business that 2% acceptance rate is, but that's kind of the norm. Uh, if you call 100 people and say, are you willing to participate in this political poll and questionnaire survey? 98 are going to say no. And about two are going to say yes. So imagine going to work every day with a 2% success rate. Once you get them on the hook, um, then, then, you know, you got, you got about what three or four or five minutes of which to, I mean, that's the Trafalgar model. The other model, the Quinnipiac model, uh, we talked about the Emerson model last week a little bit about how Robert's summary, I say Robert's Trafalgar summary was 11 pages. The Emerson summary was about 195 or six or seven, nearly 200 pages. And it went through all of these, um, exhausting questions and People just aren't going to do that, but, but here's what, I mean, this is my opinion The the non-response bias is more pronounced than ever because the Trump voter the Republican voter, um, won't even accept the response. They won't even respond, you know, um, no, have a good day. Uh, not only do they get to the point and say, are you voting for Trump or not? Do you support Trump or not? Some will just deny answering that question, decline, answering that question, but 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 Robert believes and and some of the I mean I think the um the rasmussen poll gives a lot of weight to this non-response bias um and that's why I just don't trust the polling I, I just I look at the polling and I think it's I know I don't know that it's polling or it's or here's a better way to say it Reb is it polling error or is it polling lying I mean I get polling error you get polling error I mean yeah. polling has always had a margin of error you know, two point five percent, three point one percent, two point zero percent. I mean, there's there's always been a methodology associated with the poll, and they
2: accept they don't get it exactly right. But are you um, trying to get it right, or are you well, I mean, skewing it well, by mean, polling too many Democrats? For if example. A, if
0: a, if a shortstop of the Braves is trying to field a ground ball, and he does it, I mean that's an error, right? I mean he gave it an effort, he just didn't yeah. do it. I mean he made a mistake, didn't feel the ball, made him. You know that they call that an error. But but if he if he intentionally misses it. It, that's not an error. Right. I mean, that, that's, that's just being, that's being dishonest. I mean, I didn't try to field it. I didn't try to stop it. I didn't try to make a play. And I think polling has turned into that. And I get it. I mean, they are paid a lot of money. And the majority of people who pay for that information is, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're liberal. I mean, it's the media. It's academia. It's the, um, you know, the UCAL Berkeley poll. It's the, the Stanford and NBC poll. It's the, you know, the local networks have affiliations with universities and the majority of people associated with those universities and the media are liberal and they want liberals to win. They want Democrats to be successful. They want to feel good about Joe Biden. They want to convince the public that Joe Biden is not that bad a president. Despite what these radio show hosts <laughs> says, the market is down 400 points as we speak. Um, stew on this for a second. I mean, we're going below 30,000. I mean, the Dow's going below 30, the S and P will probably go below 3,800, but Dow plus or less 27.5, I mean, by the end of October, mm. I think it's Dow less than 27.5 by the end of October. Wow. The Fed will meet this morning and again tomorrow and then um make their announcement on the rates. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.